Happy weekend slash start of the week, everybody. A couple of quick notes. Major congratulations going out to Gary Clark Jr., Tool, Candlemas featuring Tony Iommi, and I prevail for Grammy nominations and for the rock and roll names we missed. Forgive me, but this should be a good year for the Grammys and for rock and roll, and shall we say finally when it comes to the rock and roll metal front. So good news there. Also, we are moving to a... Different format, we will have mini-casts during the week, a few shows about three to five minutes in length, talking about the topics going on for the day and the week, and then the big show, the review, and also interviews down the road that will take place on the weekend show. So we're changing things up a little bit so we can give you more rock and roll goodness. Thanks to the people who helped put together this special presentation as well, pulling archived interviews from all kinds of sources, as we've done over the years. And now, without further ado... Let's get on with the program. Simon Dave! Tonight, the best of Volume 1, Part 2, featuring classic interviews with Paul Stanley, Sammy Hagar, David Coverdale, K.K. Downing from Judas Priest, and many, many more. Recorded live and on the road, the transmission begins now. In a world entrenched in darkness, desperately seeking hope and security, a coalition of nations invoke a highly classified program, commissioned by their ancestors generations ago, for such a time when all else has failed. They called for but one man to light the flame, to carry the torch, which is really a guitar, ready to blast the battle cry. Behold, the time has come for... Rock and Roll! Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. This is the oh. best of volume one, part two. Part two, yes, indeed. The 100th show celebration with Shane the Vinyl Master here. The Vinyl Master's here. We got, got the party favors. This is a party. It's a celebration, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. It is so great to be with you, and and uh, of course to be with you, to be with the listeners, and, and to be with you, Shane, as Love well. Love being here, Dave. Uh, Shane, Love you've it. been a huge part of this show as we've been doing this now. One hundred, technically one hundred twelve shows, or thirteen, or some somewhere in there. Yeah. But we know we're over a hundred, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, Shane, I just wanted to uh, first of all, wh what do you think? I mean, we, we started the show. I started the show back in March, and to think that we're at you know past 100 now it's kind of crazy right yeah I, i'm it's amazing how how far you've gone with this and it's really enjoyable and and you know kk mustaine all the people that you've had on it's just mind-blowing really i mean i'm not trying to blow smoke but <laughs> <clears throat> got to gotta give you kudos for all the hard work that you've put into this. Hey, I appreciate that. And, and, and you know, you as a really a producer in many ways, yeah. too, you know, working with you, it's been great. You've had great ideas. And, you know, when we launched the Vinyl Master segment, there's so much we, we can talk about. It's not there's even so just vinyl much. all the time. But, you know, you know, you've taught me a lot about vinyl and I've learned so much from you. And I truly, awesome. truly appreciate that. Um, so we've got a lot going on here. Now, you, you te teach me about a lot of bands that I've never even gotten into before bands that maybe didn't get a lot of the big press you've been listening yeah. to vector tell vector, me about vector vector yeah. a philadelphia band i honestly i don't even know their status right now um <clears throat> but um i've been following them for a while um 
they opened for, I think it was the Melvins or somebody that we saw, or I think it was Voivod they opened okay. for. We saw them in Lancaster, and they just blew, blew <clears throat> I don't want to say they blew Voivod off the stage, but mm -hmm. they were just extremely impressive and, you know, as you heard, very high energy with, yeah. with a tremendous amount of uh, finesse and, and musical ability. Um, <clears throat> I noticed that uh, if you're into bands like Voivod, if you're into some of the dark metal, some of the, the doom doom metal, <clears throat> some of the sludge, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's Which what, I never that, got into yeah. myself, but it's okay. It's totally That's cool. where the yeah. voice comes from. from yeah, this yeah. Group. It's like a very unique voice, but the band is up, um, and they're just they're just wailing. And it's uh, the album that I really really go to from them is called Outer Isolation. Okay. But they're a Philly band, and. Um, I wish that uh, they could get in contact with you or something because it would be great to know where they stand. Yeah, yeah. Are they together? Are they apart? But, I, I mean, um, a couple months ago, I played this album like five times in the car back to back. Mm. Just just uh, bone-crunching stuff. And, and they write a lot. They talk about space, right? Sort of things. Yeah, like, they're, yeah. they're like Voivod or Hawkwind. They talk about, like, futuristic things, a lot of futuristic themes, um, <clears throat> fantastical-type themes stories stuff like that but it's just really really good okay and cool. I, I give them a really high recommendation i think you really like them too right you yeah. really dig them I, I i heard a little bit from what i heard i liked but yeah i'll have to check it out I, I i don't get into the heavy heavy it's hard to get into like the really really heavy stuff yeah but i like the themes in terms of space and I, anything about space and technology and futuristic themes i like it's just it's kind of like it's cool you know, yeah. sci-fi and music, it, it comes together. But you can check them out on Bandcamp. They're V-E-K-T-O-R. Just a great group. Um, they have some stuff that have popped up on, on Bandcamp because I've been looking for Vector for a while to try to find this stuff, and it's extremely expensive. Mm. But here we got the CD <clears throat> and vinyl of, like, three or four records, and uh, the stuff is uh, very, very affordable. 18 bucks for the vinyl, 12 bucks for the CD. Uh, highly, highly recommended from the Vinyl Master. Okay. Very cool. Absolutely. Uh, moving on from that, we we were checking out something that's very different. The Down and Outs band, Joe Elliott, yeah, of course. What is that about? I know, from Def Leppard, uh, he has this side project, and I didn't realize, no, This Is How We Roll was the track we listened yeah. to that came out not too long ago. I didn't realize he had this thing together a little bit before that, I think for a few years now, yeah. maybe four or five years. Very different from Def Leppard. It's, it's raw rock and roll. You know, just cranked up guitars, some uh, pianos, some keyboards in there too. What did you think of it? It sounds like he's just really enjoying himself, and um, I don't want to throw you know, Def Leppard in the, in the hamper or anything, but I mean, it just sounds like he's refreshed, yeah, and really enjoying what he's doing with these guys. Um, do you know anything about the band or? Well, I know that he. I, I, I'm sort of discovering this myself. He, he, I'm trying to remember where he came up with the players I, I read something and of course I can't recall it at the moment but yeah. I know that uh, he was really kind of itching he's really into the sweet he's really into Mott yep. the Hoople he's a huge Joe Elliott a huge Mott the Hoople fan and I, I know he wanted to do something that pays homage to straight kind of classic hard rock you know the stuff Absolutely. he grew up on so I think that's really from what I gathered that's really the, the sort of impetus for this you know like a bar band yeah type. and yeah. you get the sense of that like you don't get the sense that this is the you know, rich and famous rock and roll Joe no. Elliott. You know, uh -uh. it's it's a guy. It sounds like a band that could be jamming in a in a pub somewhere. And you know? it, it's impressive because he's singing completely different, and yeah. his voice sounds really, really good. Yeah, 
I don't know. Maybe no, I agree. Not I, that it doesn't sound good when he's in the studio with yeah. the leopard, but they have that sound, and yeah. this is such an escape from that that yeah. it really kind of took me back. Do you think they probably need that too? Because you know we were talking about how Def Leppard, you know, they that sound was kind of the, the '80s sound and the big vocals and all of that. That they still have yeah. that Mutt Lang sound. And it's classic, and you know they're one of those bands that can tour with Def Leppard. They're they're going, I mean, tour with uh, Journey, you know, and still have like those dozen hits that they play. They're going to go out with the sure. Pretenders this summer, you know, play that's, all the hits. That's got to get old, though. right? Right, and it, and this is like you said, being refreshed. something different, yeah. And that's that's uh, what makes it kind of exciting in the sense that it's like, uh, and I've told you this before about David Lee Roth when he did, you know, the David Lee Roth band with with John and yeah. stuff. It was like um, Mr. Five, of mm -hmm. course. About but 20 years old now, that record, I think. It, it, it was such a departure, but it was still the same, and that's what I, that's what I kind of felt about the down and outs. It was like uh, yeah. different, but the same. And it, it wasn't Mutt Lang, and it wasn't that synth. Right. It was just a good, old-fashioned rock and oh, roll. Oh, yeah. No, you can't like, sign that. me up! Right, exactly. We're talking to you, talking to you here in the uh, the car cast, if you will, uh, the mobile studio, by the way, <laughs> if it sounds a bit different. Um, so, yeah, so we got that. Uh, and then we're also talking about some reissues. Uh, Def Leppard, I'm not, I keep saying Def Leppard. Because I, were I was talking about them, we played the Rick Allen interview on the yeah. first, you know, the first, um, when Rick Allen came by the Fox 29 studios that day, he was promoting his artwork with the Wentworth Galleries. And yeah. we, we did, I just uh, got done taping volume one, uh, well, the best of volume one, part one. Absolutely. And we, so I, I keep saying Def Leppard and then Motley Crue goes out. Yeah. You know, by the way, let's talk about that real quick. What do you think about Motley Crue uh, going back out now, some fans are a little ticked off about this. Can I say ticked off? I think I can say that. That's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're, they're frustrated because they feel that they were duped into buying tickets for a farewell tour a few years ago. Now, we saw them with Kiss about right. six years ago. They signed an agreement, the was, guys, to yeah, say they're not going to tour. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was it. A little frustrating. Right, but now they're back. They said... <laughs> they ripped up the contract yep. that they signed. They said they're bigger than ever now because of the movie The Dirt, the biopic, right. gave them a new legion of fans. What, what's your take on that? I'm, I'm, I get it. Um, they, The boys want to get back together. I, I don't have a problem with it. It's just, you know, you kind of feel a little goofy. I, that happened to me with David Bowie. You know, it was a farewell thing, and yeah. I'm not going to ever do these songs again, and then... I saw him 10 years later and he's playing some of the same songs that yeah. he said he was never going to play again. So I guess you got to do a little bit of the, um, keep it, yeah. keep it mysterious and, and, and keep your fans. But I mean, <clears throat> they still got it. They might as well use it. I mean, yeah. don't waste it. I, I can see the frustration now with people, but I mean, I think there's a hell of a lot more people out there that want to see Motley Crue mm -hmm. than have them still be in retirement. I think it's, you know, I, I was mean, saying... The that, response has yeah. been just on my Facebook page alone. And the people, I mean, I, I can, like, 50 people will be, I'm, I can't wait, I can't wait. Because yeah. they're touring with Def Leppard, Poison, and Motley Crue. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's a heck of a bill. That's a huge bill, yeah. yeah. I was saying in the last show, I was not surprised by this, because I feel like they were at least, this will be the third time they've broken up, and they've gotten back together. And oh, I wow, never, I, I, I think, because I remember, <laughs> well... For my, I mean, because I think there there was something in the early. There, was a, there were two breakups. Okay, there was one. I think in the, I got to double check this. I think there was one in the nineties, um, and right. then I remember another one. I feel like in the early two thousands. This is just from recollection. So there was the like, John Carabi yeah. thing in there. Right, the John Carabi. Exactly. Yep. So this Neil was out. Yeah. yeah. Wow. 
I don't so, know. I, I didn't so know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's not. It's okay. It's not the first time. It may not be three, but it's not the first time. Yeah. So I wasn't surprised they were going to do that. But you know, hey, if they're going to do it, why not? You know. Yeah, and I and, and from what I've heard, they're getting their their stuff again, again, for uh, remastering. Uh, we, we talked about it last time, I think, with something with. Uh, I think it was. Um, <clears throat> Doctor Feelgood or whatever, yep. yeah. thirty years old now. Yeah, yeah that's right. and they, they're doing a deluxe version of that. And then there was some talk of some other other LPs being re-released, um, remastered, and stuff again. I don't know how many times you can do this, but yeah. um, for the fans that don't have the stuff, go out and get ready because I guess there's going to be a lot of Motley Crue coming. Yeah, and speaking of that, you were talking about uh, some Dio that's coming out. Um, was what were the records there? Yeah, the Dio stuff is like uh, insane. It's like a whole bunch of. Um, let me get this thing to pop up, Diamond. Mm -hmm. uh -oh. yeah, I, I think Magica was one of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. It was Magica. It, it was, was like um, the last, which was kind of a concept record. Um, and then um, was it Master of the Moon? That's a song, Master of the Moon. Now, th this was a later version. This was um, a later version of Dio. You had Craig. Um, it's not Craig Gold. It, it, uh, Doug Ulrich from. Uh, or Aldrich from Whitesnake. He played in Whitesnake, and uh, he was with uh, Dio uh, and did some unique stuff. I just remember he had that glistening gold top, Les Paul. Right. He's a Les Paul guy. Um, and uh, Simon Wright from ACDC was in the later version of the band as well. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Bain was in the group for a while. Like When they did that song, Push, which was about 2003, um, they, Jack Black is a huge uh, Dio fan, and sure. so... Uh, Tenacious D, they were in, um, they were in the video for it, the song <laughs> Push, where they were right. playing. They were just on the street. Uh, uh, Kyle Gass, I think, and um, and Jack Black, they were playing the song, uh, a take on the song Heaven and Hell. You know, nice. Um, and, and they, and they made know, it into the yeah, killing a, a dragon. Yeah, thing. yeah. The spoof. There was a line was you know <laughs> the, the devil is never something. I think he's coaching the Lakers or something like that. It was kind of funny, but and then Dio comes in and they say, hey, I want you to play some tenacious D. And Dio puts a, a, a I think a silver dollar or something in, in the in the sure the guitar thing, whatever. Anyway, it was kind of fun. Well, this, so this yeah. is the stuff that I you you were more familiar with this. I I am not, and now I'm going to definitely have to check it out, but. Uh, Angry Machines mm -hmm. from 1996, Dio, okay. yep. uh, Tracy on guitars, Tracy G, Jeff Pilson, Vinny on drums, of course. That, I think, was a comeback. I think that was the album where Vinny came back. And then Scott Warren on keys. Um, they had, they tacked on a live on Angry Machines tour, 12 tracks of live Dio mastery from that, that tour. Uh, Killing the Dragon looks like... Uh, Smaller set, <clears throat> only six songs from the Killing the Dragon tour tacked on. That uh, uh, pushes disc. and pushes the song from me. That's the one yeah. that the Tenacious D guys. That were is in, yeah. uh, t 2002. Ronnie, yep. Doug Aldrich, mm -hmm. Jimmy Bain, Simon Wright on drums. So Jimmy's the original bass player yeah. or legend. So Jimmy was in the band for quite some time. I just remember thinking, wow, it was amazing that he was in that video that he had. You know, and we lost him. Rest in peace. That's a great him. cover. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. The covers are really Dude, cool. I, I, you, you'll like these albums, yeah. I think, because it's still very much Dio, and, and it's very thematic. Magic is a very thematic right. album. Um, there's a song, uh, uh, see, as long as it's not about love, I think is on there. Is it Chalice, I think is another one. Yeah. Um, Feed My Head, so some really good, you know, uh, songs there. The, the master, yeah. And there's also 2000, in addition to Magica, there's also 2004, Master of the Moon. Yep. I guess, is that the last record? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Did? Is Shivers on there? 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Track four. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good. And um, that yeah. gets a, a treatment of five extra live on the Masters of Moon tour mm -hmm. tracks from that tour. And that's a completely different lineup. It's Ronnie James, Craig Goldie on guitar, Pilsen yep. on bass again, and Simon Wright returning on drums. So all these albums have different yeah. uh, lead guitarists. Simon Wright from ACDC, of course, and, and um, he came in a little bit later in the, the 80s. I, I believe he's in the You Shook Me All Night Long video, or You yeah. Shook Me video. Um, the, Craig Goldie was actually in, the interesting thing about Craig Goldie, he was in, if you, if you go back to the Hearing Aid uh, video, right. remember that? When it was yeah. um, the the, tri the tribute, um, I forget the benefit, it was a benefit concert they did. Craig Goldie was in, uh, was it Jirafira? How do you say that? Jira? Jafria? Jafria, that's, yeah, that's how you say it. Yeah. He was in that band, and, and he later joined, he was in this video back in 85 when they did that uh, that piece, when they did that, um, you know, everybody's in the video, the, uh, Dave Murray and Adrian Smith from Iron Maiden, yeah. uh, and everybody else. And um, so, so it was interesting that, you know, way back when, Craig Goldie was part of this project, the Hearing Aid Project, and, and then would later go into Dio. Yeah. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's great that uh, Ronnie kept going. And when did the Sabbath album fall into this? Uh, ninety the like Dehumanizer album yeah. that was ninety two. That, that was, was that like, early. Yeah, yeah that was wow. ninety two. That was the reunion of the Dio era. And originally, it was uh, it was supposed to be uh, Cozy Powell was uh, on the demos for that. Yeah. According to, to some rumors, and and um, and then he couldn't do it, so Vinny Appice came back, which made sense because Vinny yeah. was on the Mob Rules album, and so that's technically the I guess third lineup of Sabbath. But it was the reunion of the Dio era, which right. was really cool. Which ended up breaking up because uh, Ozzy Osbourne was going to do a retirement concert, and the, the story was he wanted that version of Sabbath to close out the show and, and you know of course Ronnie James Dio's like uh, no I'm not doing that <laughs> for obvious reasons yeah Magica isn't on the list yet to be purchased but it uh, apparently has a bunch of ripping tracks like Lord of the Last Day that is a good one um, yeah. and Holy Divers version of that and Heaven of Heaven and Hell will be on that list okay the live tracks and uh Good stuff. There's a possibility that God Hates Heavy Metal might show up. It's apparently a Japanese only. Okay. I don't know. I never heard. It's, it's an interesting This title. is all over my head, but I'm I'm about ready to go nuts over it. Yeah, I, I, I heard of that track. I, mean, I never heard that song, but I heard of that track. And um, But no, the later Dio stuff is great. I mean, it really was. It, the voice was richer. It was kind of like when yeah. when they did the Heaven and Hell, the, the album The Devil You Know, which was the, the, sad, the, the reunion. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of the reunion... Um, of that, that version of Black Sabbath, right. uh, and uh, you know, same thing. His voice was just very heavier, and it aged very well. But he still had it. You know, yeah. it was really cool. So uh, some really cool reissues coming. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these span from this month all the way to February of yep. next year. And I'm sure there's going to be even more stuff to talk about next time. So. That's right, yeah. Dude, I love so, it. And you know this is because this is volume <laughs> two of the best of volume one. Or, yeah. I, let me do that again. Volume The, the best of volume <laughs> one part two. Um, <laughs> I, I called it that because that was the greatest hits album that broke up Van Halen in a way. And the best of volume one. <laughs> Sammy didn't want to do it. Dave right. came back for two songs, you know. And then Dave thought he was apparently thought he was back in the band. They did the MTV <laughs> Music Awards thing in 1996. Right. Everyone thought he was back and then he wasn't. So. <laughs> So anyway, but let's do this. Let's talk about, um, you know, because we're, we're kind of replaying some of the great interviews. You and I did a great interview with Charlie Burchill of Simple oh, Minds, right? What, what a sweet human being. I yeah. Mean, just the nicest guy. 
and he uh, he was just uh, so down to earth. I mean, we were talking to him about about everything from his favorite guitarists. Yeah, and, and we learned so much about his style of playing. That, mm-hmm. um, it's just something I'll absolutely cherish forever getting to talk to him because it was just such a such a laid back experience. He wasn't he wasn't pompous. He was just yeah. hey man, what's up? So nice, right? And that's KK's the same way. And yeah. that's you gotta love people that just uh, know who they are. You know? Oh, absolutely. They're so self-actualized, almost, for lack of a better description. The only thing and, better is if... Go ahead. I cut you off. I'm sorry. And that's... You, Dave's that way, Mustaine, and... Yeah. You know, just... That's what you want. When you meet your idols, you want to be... Yes. You, you just want to be impressed, and I have to say, there's a few we can't obviously name, but... Right. <laughs> haven't been impressive, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. But the ones that are just... You know, they stick with you and they keep coming back. I'd love yeah. to talk to him again, yeah. pick his brain yeah. some more and, and get Jim on as well. That would be awesome. But you know what? We It would be wrong if we talk about how great that interview was and we don't yeah. play it. So let's play that right now. What do you say? Absolutely. This is the best of volume one. Charlie Burchill of Simple Minds, a great interview that Shane and I did. It was a pleasure. Here it is. We've got Charlie Burchill from Simple Minds on the line here. Charlie, you guys were just in Philadelphia and, uh, from what I understand, played a packed house. Tell me first, what was it like uh, coming back to Philly after all these years? Well, it was really, I mean, obviously, the, we, one of our biggest memories is Philly because of the, uh, the Live Aid concert. So it was really, uh, the Tower Theater was always the venue where David Bowie did a live album from there, and a number of people have done live albums in, in the tower. And for us, it was always a really special album. That so coming to Philly with the between the Live Aid concert and the Tower Theatre, it was a really special occasion for us. Yeah, and David Bowie was such a huge influence for you guys too. Did I read that you even uh, adopted the name Simple Minds from a David Bowie lyric? Yeah, we did. It's on, it's on the song called Jean Genie. And it, it, there's a, a moment in it, it says, uh, So Simple Minded. And that, we knew that we, we, had, we were looking for a name uh, because we had been a punk band originally. And then we, we, sort of, we were looking for a name change. And um, that just came, came up, and Jim grabbed it, and that stuck with us. There and it was all history from there. <laughs> the new record, Walk Between Worlds, has so much power to it. It has, uh, I, I mean, you've got a lot musically. You've, you've always been a very sonic band, and it sounds like you've embraced more of the uh, synth technology. Tell me about just creatively where you were and cre- you and Jim and the band and creating the record and, and the modern yeah. sound. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of old analog equipment, keyboards that I use, and um, sequencers and things like that. And um, yeah, we just, uh, I mean, the first track that was, the first track to be written for the album, kind of, was um, the the opening track called Signal and the Noise. And that kind of set, in a way, set the tone for the kind of, the sound of the album, if you like. We wanted it to sound, you know, contemporary. Even we wanted it to sound slightly poppy in areas. Um, but, you know, as usual, whenever we're working on stuff, 
there always ends up endless layers of stuff going on in there. So it's all quite, you know, it, it, it's all quite electronic, and there's a lot of guitars with loads yeah. of treatments. And it's and but we wanted to have a kind of a a, a sort of a modern up up to date pop album that had depth to it. And you guys really do that. You talk about guitar, you know, you've had such a unique sound going back to, I think, the new wave creation and I think a really underrated sound. There's there's sounds that, it sounds like a keyboard coming from a guitar, but yeah, that's, that's, that's I mean, talk about just, you know, applying that sound and, and you've really kept that tone and your style through all these years, even after you add some modern layers and pop layers to it. So what's it, what was it like keeping that sound together and, and was it a yeah. challenge after all this time? I mean, it's just, it, 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 for me, it's something that, you know, it's, it's like something that just, it's quite natural, you know. I, I work a lot with echo units and, you know, delay. And, um, you know, I use that to try and, you know, like, sort of give, you know, give atmospheres at times. Uh, sometimes the keyboards are just too dense for, and the sound ends up feeling like there's so much going on and it's, it's too clogged up. But... But the guitar, you can kind of like make it drift in and out and and create the same effect as a keyboard. Yeah. So that that comes quite natural to me, just to sort of use volume pedals and delay. You know? And you really wail away on um, the um, the star uh, barrel and star. I, like I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> tell me about uh, you were rocking out there. It was almost. Uh, I mean, what what were you feeling in that moment? Guitar solos can be emotional at times. What were you feeling in in, in that moment of just. Uh, Really well, it's good, well, it's, good, it's, it's funny, it's a really, really interesting one because, you know, we wrote that song in 19... Well, it was an instrumental. I, I wrote it in 1990. Oh, wow. And Jim Jim loved it and he thought... And we put it on a B-side of a, of a single. And uh, and Jim really, really, really liked it. And, um, you know, he decided that we would revisit the song, you know, to because to, he, he always felt that... At the time, he, did, he didn't have anything lyrically, but he always regretted it because he loved the track. Ah. And and the funny thing is that the guitar solo on it is the original one that I did in 1990. Is it really? <laughs> That's yeah. wild. That's really and I, wild. And the thing was, I was just sitting in my house, uh, you know, and I'd worked on this piece of music for a laugh. I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't writing for anything. I just, I'm, I'm all, every day I'm in the studio just working on music. And then at the end of that, I had this sort of long bit at the end, and I thought, oh, for a laugh, I'm going to just rock out on this, because I don't <laughs> do that. But I thought, I'm going to have a bit of a laugh. So I just kind of went off my head a bit and just sort of, you know, and then, and then Jim said, ah, that's amazing, that's amazing, I love that. <laughs> and then and it's, it's so it's stuck. <laughs> Tell me about you and Jim. You guys go back to I think you were eight years old when you met. Seven, eight years old. Yeah. What What's it like? Uh, how do you work together generally? And has it changed after all these years? Well, it has changed, yeah. Because originally, when Jim and I used to write, we would sort of go into our bedrooms and just have to have the guitar, and he would, you know, he would, you know, come up with all sorts of. And Jim would. Uh, Jim's always great at putting a context on things and giving it meaning and and that really helps me musically to to move forward but over the years it's changed quite a bit because apart from all the technology and you know living apart more you know because for quite a lot of our early career 
we were like we were more or less together 24 7 you know jim jim always, jim always says it's like a marriage but so far we haven't slept with each other and, <laughs> and charlie hasn't tried to take my house away from me <laughs> so uh, but i mean but now what we do is it, it starts with the music i i, I come up with the music and i i have a you know a whole thing a whole a whole track done kind of and then I'll send it to Jim, and if if he, you know, if he gets it, uh, then he'll he'll write on it and he'll send it back to me. And then when we've got about four or five, we'll get together and we just work them out in a room together. Ironically, you talk about writing together. The one track that uh, you can't forget about, uh, and that you haven't, <laughs> that you didn't write, but it, it was, uh, you know, a huge, huge hit for you guys. Of course, yeah. don't you forget about me, the Breakfast Club soundtrack. Is it surreal to, you know, to play that song still and and see all those fans going back to their yeah. youth? And I mean, what's it like playing that? Well, I have to say, I mean, you know, we've gone from being very indifferent about the song to absolutely loving it, <laughs> and in fact. <laughs> I mean, when I hear the track on radio now or anywhere, I mean, it's a brilliant sounding track. It sounds great when it comes on. It just, you know, it kicks in and it's got a whole style. And it, the thing that's really great about it is the generations have, it's, 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 it's crossed all the generation gap. You know, it's transcended. Uh, I mean, even the movie has done that. Uh, you know, somehow people just relate to that song yeah. and that movie and and it can work for every every generation. And we really, um, we love the guy who wrote it, Keith. And Keith kind of wrote the song thinking of it as a Simple Minds song. Mm. So it is vastly different from the demo, but, you know, um, and uh, so it, it's, not like it, it's not like something that we don't feel part of. Mm. You know, it's, it's very much our song, you know, even though we didn't write it. I, and I read it was uh, originally offered to, I think they tried to get the singer from The Fix to do it. They also tried to get, um, was it the, um, I think Billy Idol at one point who covered yeah, it later? Yeah, well, you know, this, one, this has become one of these stories that flies around. That what basically happened was that, you know, the, the label wanted us to do it, but we had written uh, the album Once Upon a Time. So we were like, well, we're not doing somebody else's song. We've got mm. plenty of songs. And they, but they, they kept pestering us and they kept saying, come on, this is going to be great. And eventually we did it. But in the meantime, I don't know if they offered it to anybody, but I don't think they offered it to... I mean, I've heard Brian Ferry, mm. Billy Idol. Um, I think the connection with Billy Idol is that Keith Forster, who wrote the song, also produced Billy Idol's album. Ah, OK. And I think that's where that story came from. And... Keith was a big Roxy Music fan, which I think is where the Brian Ferry one came from. Oh, that makes but, sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm joined by my colleague Shane here. He actually went to the show at the Tower Theatre. Shane, you had a How question. you doing, Charlie? Um, How you doing now? How you doing, Shane? You must, be, you must have an Irish background. <laughs> I, have, I have a Scottish last name. It's McGachern, so. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> a fellow Celt. Yeah, there you go. You guys are usually a... A stadium band. What's it like on this tour to be playing smaller venues in America? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, my favorite venues to play are theaters, and they really are, you know. And um, I mean, for me, you know, the, the some of the theaters and, and that we've played so far in the states, 
are so beautiful. I mean, we were in the in Red Bank in the Count Basie. You know, I, 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 we played in Nashville there in the Ryman. Mm. Um, and you know the history here, the musical history in this country is a not, it's just colossal. And when you go to these theatres, there's usually some kind of resonance of all that greatness, you know, the the real stuff, you know, where it all came from, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite songs you you guys played the other night was Themes for Great Cities. Just an amazing, <laughs> amazing instrumental. It was one of my first <laughs> albums I bought from you guys. Wow. And, um, I gotta say, uh, what what would your favorite song? What's your favorite song to play live, or does it change all the time? Well, uh, you know, I love playing Team for Great Cities. I must say, it's great. It's great fun because it's a it's like a caricature song. You know, it's like <laughs> I start with the keyboards, then it's like you know, there's all this kind of stuff going on, and the bass line's really busy, the guitar's really yeah. busy, and Sharice, the drummer. I mean, she does an amazing job on that. It's quite a tricky one to play, you know, the drums on Team for Great Cities, but she was cool, eh, Charisse, the drummer. And, yes. yeah, we, we, I wanted to ask you about her, too, because, I mean, she plays with so much fire and, and yeah. passion. How did you guys link up with her? And I also understand Mel Gaynor's on the record, but obviously not on the, the tour. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that, too? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but what happened was we we did a, an acoustic project, um... You know, that that was the before we did Walk Between Worlds. Mm. And um, on that, so being acoustic, there was no need for drums, but we wanted percussion. So a friend of ours, Sharice had played with Roxy Music in the past. Oh, wow, okay. And, wow. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a friend of ours said, listen, I know the perfect girl to do the percussion. She's a brilliant drummer as well. And Sharice came in and she played the percussion and we loved her energy and loved her whole vibe. And then we, um, we, we, we sort of, after we did the, the acoustic tour, we, we started doing some songs with her. And then we thought, well, we, you know, and Mel was doing his own thing. He was kind of a, he, he's been sort of like, you know, heading towards this solo career for a while. Mm. And, and we thought, well, this is probably the time to do this. And, and she's amazing. I mean, she, she, is. Just, yeah. she's, she just gets it and she looks incredible and she's, and she's always like really, you know, yeah, she's amazing. She, yeah, she's ahead. the whole package. <laughs> yeah, she's the whole package. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys have uh, um, Sarah, I think it's Sarah Brown, right? On a yeah, vocals. Sarah, and and uh, Sarah, what, what's she this? Sang, go ahead. She go sang ahead. with Roxy Music as well. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, so Brian Ferry is, but he's 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 not too happy with us. <laughs> Doing all his, you know. No, she she sang with uh, lots of people in the past. Yeah. Sarah, she sang with Duran Duran, uh, Roxy yeah. Music, um, or uh, Simply Red. Okay. Quite a few. And Sarah's been with us for about eight years now. That you know, and, that's uh, the funny thing in the old days in the music store. If you you go for a Simple Minds record and you can't find Simple Minds, you see Simply Red. If you can't find Simply Red, you see Simple Minds. <laughs> it was it was all the time. Yep. Thank God for digital in that respect. That, that, that's because I go into the record stores and when I see a Simply Red album, I always put it behind the Simple Minds one. Was, was it some confusion in the early days? I mean, you know, early on. No, no I'm kidding. I'm yeah. Kidding. Yeah. No, but no, the 
has been, yeah. Oh, you're that band, Simply Red. You're like, no. <laughs> um, I just had a, cu- a couple more questions. I mean, what's it like? I mean, the lineup, you know, it, it, lineups change. It, it's a normal thing for bands, but it feels like this lineup, it, it's so different. I mean, there's obviously the, the increase in, in feminine influence, I think, uh, yeah. female influences. But, you know, how does this band compare to, you know, kind of where you guys have been before? And Because it, it feels like you guys, I mean, the, the, the fire's there, the passion's there, the me- everything's there. And it, it just, I don't know, it, it feels... It, it feels very modern at the same time. You yeah, know, that's right. Well, that was the, that, that, that's everything you said there is exactly what we we wanted to get. The guy who plays keyboards and, and occasional guitar, Gordy, he's a guy who Jim and I have written songs with in the past and we've worked in the studio for the last maybe 25 years, you know. The together. Cry album, right? You did Cry together, I think? We did Cry. We did a covers album. We did... Um, I've done quite, quite a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, Jed, the bass player, he used to be in a band called Danny Wilson. They had a, they had a okay, big hit. yeah, 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 yeah. And um, but you know, the, the, I suppose the difference really is that I mean, first of all, everybody, everybody's attitude because ninety percent of the thing is off stage. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the, the, it's, of course, it's super important on stage to be there. But but you know, when you're off stage, that's really important. And this group of people were just, were, were so tight and it's such great fun and there's never any grumpiness or anything. And I think that transmits, certainly on stage we have a lot of fun, you know, and I think it's just stuff like that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Charlie, especially on those older tracks, um, <clears throat> just amazing guitar work. Do you ever uh, get annoyed? I'm not trying to start a guitar war or anything, but... <laughs> You guys were writing that stuff, you know, 80, 81, and there was a guy called The Edge that came along after that, sort of <laughs> sort of copping that style. Do you ever sort of... Res- <laughs> yeah, Edge is a really, really dear, really close friend, you know? Right. And um, funny enough, I'll tell you, I think that, you know, if anything, Edge kind of got his thing a little bit, quite a lot from um, Stuart Adamson in okay. really? Big Country. Um, but you know delays and all that stuff. Yeah, there was a bit of that. <laughs> but no, <laughs> I mean, I think I think that the, the what happened was the technology always has a huge influence on the sound. I mean, you know, at that at that particular point in time when roughly when the Edge and I were starting, that was the that was when Echoes delay units started to really become very prominent. Yeah. You know, and and you know there was a few people around, like older guys, who like John Martin, he's an acoustic guy from Glasgow, sure. who were uh, they were brilliant with echo units, and I always loved it, and I think he did too, and, and we both gravitated towards that type of style. Yeah. So you'd say John Martin was your influences then, huh? <laughs> oh, John Martin was brilliant. He was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I just had one one last question. You touched on it in the beginning, live aid. I was watching the video. You never know. And then I like to go back to the video, and I, I mean yeah. the crowd. It was so massive um, in the the South Philly uh, area. Yeah. Um, your fond memories of live aid. I mean, was there ever a gig that big? You know, in terms of just the ca- a cause. I know they kind of did something similar again in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. But what are your memories of just Philadelphia and, and that bill? Well, well, it was amazing because, I mean, first of all, I got to jam with Bo Diddley, oh, which wow. is pretty, pretty mega. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And then, you know, it was just everywhere you walked, there was some legend, you know. I had legend fatigue out there, <laughs> you know. And then, and then there was like, but the, but the funniest thing of all was, so they explained to us, they said, right, look, the guy's going to go on stage and he's going to introduce the band. And then you've got 15 minutes and you've got to get up there and you've got to, you know, get, get on sharp. And so we were like, oh, okay then, right. So we, we wait for the, the announcement. And of course, there's Jack Nicholson doing the announcement. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just surreal, you know. It was like, yeah. what? You know, Jack Nicholson introducing simple lines and Philly. And um, it was like that all day, you know. There just seemed to be mad stuff happening the whole day. There was Everybody was in a great mood. And um, yeah, and it was an amazing stadium as well. All right, fantastic. Well, Charlie, anything else you'd like to uh, add before you go? Anything you'd like to say to the folks out in the Philly area? It's like you say, it's a, it's a great town, and um, I wish I had bought a guitar there because I had my hands on a beautiful Martin guitar, and I didn't <laughs> buy it, and I, I'm regretting ever since. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you can find something like it or find it again someday. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to Philly for it. There you go. Yes. All right, Charlie Bridgell, thank you so much. You guys are continuing. Where, where are you guys uh, off to next? Uh, we're in Cleveland tonight and Milwaukee tomorrow. All right. Oh, another great music yeah. town, Cleveland. There you go. All right. Yeah, yeah. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie thank you for the time so much. Thanks, Appreciate thanks a lot, it, guys. Thank you. Just relax. Going to take a trip back through time. This won't hurt a bit. Whoa, okay. So we are in October of 2018. Man, time travel really gives you whiplash. Anyway, we are here in 2018. There's Paul Stanley walking in, and I see myself talking to him about art, about the Kiss Farewell Tour, and a new book, and all kinds of cool things. Wow, that's that was an amazing memory. I can see it now. as part of the Wentworth Gallery uh, presentation. You've been painting for a number of years. Yeah. Tell us, uh, you know, how you're feeling meeting the fans as they uh, take a look at your work there. I'm a big, big believer that um, people need to understand that they don't have to justify their opinion. They don't need to have a qualified opinion. You don't have to have an educated opinion. So, um, although the more... Uh, uh, important pieces, so to speak, go to collectors, and I'm very proud to be hanging on the wall with artists who I, I respect. Um, people who've never been to a gallery can certainly come and uh, find something they would like rather than tearing a page out of a magazine and hanging that on the wall. Um, it's just important for people to realize that an opinion is valid because it's theirs and it doesn't need to, to be justified. So for me, Art has been amazing uh, because I've managed to perhaps introduce people who don't know anything about art to it. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the serious collectors and, and people who uh, acquire the more important pieces have also, in, in a sense, validated what I'm doing by uh, putting their, the pieces in their homes and embracing my art. So it's been incredible for me. You express yourself as an artist musically, of course. Is it different doing it uh, as a painter as, as well? 
It is different. It's different because there's less, uh, I think there's less time thinking about um, the, the multi-structure of it. In other words, when I write a song, I'm dealing with music, I'm dealing with melody, I'm dealing with rhyme scheme. Uh, with, with painting, I, I have much more of a feeling of uh, freedom. And uh, it's, it's, it's very cathartic. And I've always approached everything I do with the sense that don't second guess anybody, whether it's music, art, writing a book. I had a New York Times number two bestseller that's in six <laughs> languages and second book is uh, imminent. So for me, it's always been about if I do something to please myself, I'll please other people. Invariably, that's what happens. Uh, lo and behold, these Puma shoes came out. Uh, I did uh, a line of shoes for Puma this past month and uh, sold out around the world the next day. So yes, being who I am, certainly can open the door but it will only open the door so many times unless there's something credible there so this is 50 years so i must be doing something right looks like the animal eyes cover yes it does yes it does it's got uh different furs and then there's some other variations and i'll be doing clothes and other stuff so i define myself by the challenges i take on and by finding creative outlets um to me that's what life's all about you mentioned the second book. Can I ask you about that? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, second book is almost, in a sense, a companion to the first. And maybe what it goes into more is how I accomplished what I've accomplished and what I do, uh, what my approach is. I'm certainly not preaching to people or telling people, do this, but I think people can get some insight into what's possible for them by seeing what I've done. I don't think uh, we accomplish much by by telling people, if I were you, I would do... Because when you do that, first of all, you go, well, you're not me. You, you've never lived a moment in my shoes, even if they're Pumas. Um, so much more important that you figure out for yourself. But I think we can all learn something from what other people do. So what I've tried to do in the book is express my point of view and how I got from point A all the way to point Z. I wanted to ask you, uh, well, I know you're tight on time, one last question about KISS. You had a big announcement, obviously, yes. with the end of the road. Um, tell us, you obviously don't want to give anything away, but I mean, how this is going to be massive. We're talking several, three years, I think, right? It could be. It, it certainly could be. It really is like a victory lap. It would be very easy for us to do a tour and then over a year or two later just go, eh, we're not going to go out anymore. But we deserve to go out and to have a final goodbye and to do things in a style that only we can. You can go see KISS DNA in every show you go to see of any band, but you can't be KISS. So for us to be able to go out there and do the biggest ultimate KISS show that we've ever done is really our way of celebrating what we've done with the people who made it possible. I think we've seen you around with some of the former members from time to time in recent years. Any chance they might come out and say hello to the folks? And the, there's no reason uh, that I, I would rule anything like that out because this is really a celebration of what the band has accomplished. Not any lineup, not any individual, but over the past 45 years or so, people have come and gone and people have been a part of it. And uh, to exclude people, I, I, I don't see a reason to.
I can't tell you what a thrill it was to talk with Paul Stanley as a huge KISS fan. It was absolutely amazing to make headlines talking about his second book, Backstage Pass, to talk about at that point, remember this was October of 2018, before the end of the road farewell tour took place to say, hear him say he's open to former members of the band coming out, even though that hasn't happened yet. To be fair, that has not happened yet, as they've done now more than what, 140 or so shows on the end of the road tour. We have yet to see Ace Fraley out there. We've yet to see Peter Chris out there. Doc McGee, the manager of the band, has said just two weeks ago or so that he that the band has reached out to former members, all living former members of the band, to be a part of their final show ever in New York in 2021. But there's issues of who will wear the makeup, who won't, as far as Ace and Peter and Tommy and Eric and, and that whole thing. Remember, that's part of what brought down the band performing together, putting the kibosh on the band performing together uh, for the uh, Rock Hall induction. Remember a few years ago, the Rock Hall wanted the original band to play in makeup. Paul Stanley said, no way, but Ace and Peter can come out, not in makeup and join us. And that was very sensitive to Ace and Peter, obviously. It makes total sense why that didn't happen. Hopefully this will not be as ugly, but you never know. In the same room we interviewed Paul Stanley, I did a phone interview with David Coverdale talking about the new Whitesnake album, Flesh and Blood. Of course, we were dealing with, you know, the, the, the greatness of technology and doing a major, you know, call across the United States and sometimes the uh, signal not working. We, we get, the, get the best out of the call, we'll put it that way. But, uh, you know, technical uh, matters sometimes don't always, you know, don't always work in your favor as any live band knows when you're on stage. But we, we uh, made it through. It was still an amazing interview. We also talked about the early days of the band, the, the Hallmark, the 87 album, the, the self-titled Whitesnake album, that tour, and really some of the controversy involving the band that recorded that album not being in the videos for that album. But we picked that up after talking about the 84 record that came before that, Love Ain't No Stranger, and singles like that that propelled them into the mainstream here in America. That was really the record that kind of, uh, you know, put everything on the map, right? I mean, at least in the States, in the United States. Oh, yeah. Um, what's it been, you know, you talked about the different lineups, John Sykes, of course, in that record. And I think yes, and yes. he was involved also with the 87 record, but there was a different lineup, I think. Is that correct? Uh, that did the tour? correct, yeah. It was also the first time I, I got the balls together uh, to actually uh, buy my way out of a, um, a somewhat compromising contract uh, and take over mm. uh, the White Snake, wacky world of White Snake. Mm. Um, and so that was the first one uh, album under my st uh, under my flag, uh, and it was the first multi platinum album, um, a, a very very big record. Huge! Actually, oh my gosh! It was my first record, first record with uh, um, with Geffen. Okay. Now I'd mixed I'd mixed it in Europe, um, and I I knew talking to the producer, a dear friend of mine from Deep Purple days, Martin Birch. Yep. That, we would, uh, prior to FedEx, that had DHL. So we were sending these mixes and hoping for feedback, and we were hearing nothing. Gotta love some of the technical issues you can have during a phone call when you're trying to call across the country, much less uh, across the world. But we also talked about 
the cross-promotion that Whitesnake is doing and why you hear songs like Here I Go Again in a Geico commercial and how it's necessary for bands to survive these days. I was offered a significant sum of money for a Canadian fiber cereal and I thought the last thing I want to do is be playing Vancouver, start Here I Go Again and everybody runs to the bathroom, you know? <laughs> so subliminary, you know? So, you know, there are certain things I won't sign off on. Everything I've approved has got a positive aspect to it, yeah. an uplifting aspect to it. You know, the Walmart ads were during, uh, and it brings Whitesnake into their mind. These things are necessary in this day and age to make uh, the economics to maintain a band like Whitesnake. Uh, it's it's not the you know nobody's doing the kind of record sales. I mean, you see the giant. Uh, sales of uh, stars like Beyonce or Taylor Swift, mm. those sales are pale in terms of what we were doing in the, in the 80s. Um, as, as beautiful and successful as the artists are, the actual sales um, are, are, are much lower than they used to be. So it's that uh, you have to look at how many... All, which avenues can support the economics of ke keeping a band profile? Yeah. So, synchronization wants merchandise is another one. You know, we're very fortunate. We have an amazing, uh, very sig substantially uh, large global foundation for White Snake sales. Um, Huge fan base, that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, I work with these people um, on social media every day, um, keeping them informed entertained amused and uh, uh, and and, uh, and uh, hopefully positively um, it's it's very interesting for uh, time for me because I want to learn all this new stuff I'm bringing more and more younger people in uh, mm. to learn you know how we can maintain uh, a profile as a classic classic rock band in the 21st century in a time of digital media you know when we went out last year I, I have a beautiful very smart and internet savvy uh, uh, girl called Elise who works with me. She's 24 years old, wow. um, and she she inspired me to start thinking outside the box. So literally, as we were driving from Lake Tahoe down to Los Angeles to start rehearsing, we started this Instagram thing called Video Postcards from the Road, which added like 80,000 followers. To All right, as we move on, everybody knows how big Live Aid was to music, and everybody knows how big the Freddie Mercury movie, really a Queen movie too, Bohemian Rhapsody was. So thinking about both of those things on the anniversary of Live Aid this year, I could not help but think of one person I know who's become a good friend who got to play the Philadelphia leg, if you will, of Live Aid, David Osikadin from the Hooters. And what he told me about that moment was awesome. What he remembered how it really compared to what Freddie Mercury must have saw when Queen took the stage in England, of course, and uh, for that side of Live Aid. So David really had some great stories to tell as the drummer of the Hooters and some of the people he met, the famous name that introduced the band, another famous encounter he had, somebody who almost blew him off the stage with his amplifier and guitar. So here's that chat with David Osikadin, a Philadelphia guy, Philadelphia area, a good friend of the Hooters. It was 
was uh, hot as all hell. <laughs> and uh, and I remember for me, right before I sat behind my drums, Jack Nicholson shook my hand. And uh, I think I just watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest like a, a few days before. <laughs> and here's Jack Nicholson shaking my hand and saying, go get him, kid. So um, uh, a, a remarkable day. Amazing. And fortunately, you know, we had a, we had a good day playing. And uh, I actually wrote today on my Facebook page that I was the only uh, actually musician that day using in-ears. Now everybody uses in-ear monitors, but we were all using just flat-out monitors. And I was uh, uh, I um, beta testing in-ears at the time for my friend Marty Garcia, and I happened to have them on. And if I didn't, my world would be completely different today because I wouldn't have heard anything <laughs> going on. Really, because I, Rob, the way we set up back in 85 was I was sitting, I was in front of the stage, but stage left, and mm. Rob was to the right, and I wouldn't have heard him, and it would have been a nightmare, and uh, if you go to YouTube and you pull up all you zombies, you you know, it, it, we really got a nice mix. However, Dave Cle uh, uh, um, Bob Clearmountain was mixing in the truck, and he wasn't familiar with the song, and at first, he had some samples he was using, and he, when I was hitting the, the side stick for cross for um, the cross stick for all you zombies, it, it was it was uh, triggering a snare drum, and and he's it, it like, "What's going on?" And like, in a two bars later or a bar later, he, he was so quick he caught it, and uh, he had a great mix. And zombies still sounds really great to this day on that uh, on that YouTube thing I see on <laughs> on, on the uh, there, man. It's good. It's good. What a day, yeah, man. I was. Yeah. Uh, I'm still blown away that uh, we were involved with uh, such a monumental event. When you watch that video, when you watch the the video of that classic performance, what goes through your mind? I mean, do you think, you know, <laughs> there's got to be a million things that go through your mind. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that that I was damn grateful to uh, Bill Graham uh, to uh, put us on that event. And if you recall in Rolling Stone magazine, um, uh, oh my God, I'm having a brain freeze on on, on uh, Boomtown Rats. Uh, um, the, 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 they organized the whole event. Uh, uh, Geldof? Bob Geldof? I'm sorry? Bob Geldof? Bob Geldof, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Bob Geldof said, who the F are the Hooters? <laughs> Did he uh, really? <laughs> you know, yeah, he said he didn't know who we were. And and Larry Maggot and, and Bill Graham and our manager, uh, you know, uh, fought for us to be on that show. And Bill brought us on. And then later on, we ended up being, you know, we did a lot of shows for Bill, Bill Graham. And, um, but it was... Um, uh, yeah, amazing. I mean, you know, what can you say? You know, you look at 100,000 people and at that point, you know, your socks are going up and down just from like the, your, your adrenaline is just flying and uh, it went by so quickly. But, you know, uh, backstage, that, that whole backstage area with Madonna and Madonna was just like, she was, um, she wasn't the Madonna of today. I mean, she had hit records at the time, but, you know, um, she was an up and comer. Um, uh, the Temptations, uh, I, I had coffee with David, uh, with Eddie Kendricks and David Ruffin uh, oh. uh, that, that day and backstage with, you know, Jimmy Page was back there and, you know, Bob Dylan, uh, Ronnie Wood, Keith Richards. Uh, I, I remember having a chat with, with Chrissy Hine as we walked, you know, we were walking to like, a, 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 you know, back, there's like a bunch of backstage areas, but I remember taking a walk with her and just chatting with her about who knows what, about how cool it was, you know, but uh, 
uh, you know, mind blowing for this for me because I never played it. Although I, it was the second time I played JFK Stadium because we opened for the Who in 1982. Okay, yeah. um, but I didn't even stay to watch the Who that day because the Hooters had a gig in Richmond, Virginia that night. Um, so, uh, but that never gets old playing an event like something like, a, a, you know, a, a venue like JFK Stadium. Yeah. It's massive. You look at an audience and uh, and it was such an incredible um, feeling to be a part of something that was, um, you know, uh, raising awareness and money for famine fam- in, 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 in Africa, uh, famine relief. And we were just thrilled to be a part of it absolutely yeah how did it go about the invitation like how did you guys first get word that you'd be selected or asked to perform how did that all work um you know from what i recall i think uh uh obviously larry maggot had a lot to do with it because he's you know the big promoter in in, uh electrific concerts and i think you know he was in bill bill graham was the guy that was the 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 big organizer and with larry uh and uh he they they basically probably i'm guessing brought it up to our manager and our manager fought for us to be on the show i think um there were a lot of bands i remember they were still picking bands the day before the show i think we found out pretty you know like maybe the week of that we were doing it It, it, you know um it was it was something that like we didn't know about for a long time and you know back then that, that's the kind of stuff that would happen like hey by the way we're gonna play you know this event you know day after tomorrow or the next day so i i don't remember a lot of thought i think a lot of time to think about it uh although i know i had a couple days because um, I mean, because there's, you could see some of the billing uh, these days. You don't even see our name on it. Um, but, um, you know, it was great because um, another thing, too, that is interesting, if you see the YouTube clip of, clip, clip of all you zombies, they say, coming from London, the Hooters. <laughs> and we were playing at JFK. Um, so and when we went to Australia, um, we had a you know that that record that came out at that time nervous night all you zombies it was a double platinum record in australia and i think a lot of a lot of that had to do with the fact that we were on tv in australia mm. now you know here's this silly band that you know at the time you know when you get on uh, primetime television in australia uh, you know another thing that changed our career it was it was unbelievable yeah, absolutely. It must have been. And I, I always wonder, did you know, and this is kind of a weird question perhaps looking at it now, but did you know, like, when you did that show, was there any idea that it was going to be as legendary as it was? I mean, you knew you no. had all this star power. Mm-mm. No, I didn't. I, I, I was just talking to my wife, Dallin, when I sit there and I said, you know, I, it was... It, it, it's the kind of thought of and always mentioned with Woodstock, um, uh, and and which was a monumental event, uh, one of a kind. I, and again, and I don't know why, because you know Watkins Glen and there's other shows that were going on at the time, the big, but um, Live Aid gets mentioned with them uh, throughout the years. Here it is, 34 years, and every time we get to July 13th, I get phone calls. I get, uh, I see posts, I get, you know, there's mentions of it, and then, you know, of course, they get like, who opened, what first rock band opened Live Aid, so, you know, uh, no, I didn't know, and I'd be lying to you if I told you I did. (laughs) 
Yeah, and, and I'm so and, and grateful, man. Absolutely grateful, Dave, that that we were part of it. You know, those kind of things, you know, change the, the, the trajectory of your career a lot of times. You, you know, again, like I said, Australia and England and places that we got airplay. You know, we, we didn't have internet back then. It was a different world. So if you get on satellite television, tele, television, television back in the day, you know, that was huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, you're totally right when you think about, you know, especially younger folks, you know, today don't think about a world without the Internet. How do they imagine that, you know, and and that was satellite. That was the way. I mean, it's worldwide. I mean, everybody was watching it wherever they were. And, you know, some people watching at work, at home, at bars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, and and, and it really and I look back on that and and I hear people's stories of uh, like I couldn't go so I, I you know a guy would say like I couldn't go so I had it on every TV and I had to go to work so I you know it's like trying to find I was jumping into places to watch it on TV like look now you pull up a phone and you watch it on your phone you you know what I mean it's like yeah. so different and we take it I, I don't know take it for granted or whatever but it's just the way of the world I mean you're, everything is so accessible now but then you had to work to get it but it was that was on everybody's mind it was it's like everybody had to see it um and we were there man <laughs> we yeah, were yeah. there we <laughs> that's were there. it we were I there mean, that's weird it. Stuff. you're a guitar player dave yeah, yeah and i'll tell you here's my live aid cool moment i'm a big eric clapton fan oh, and man. uh I'm, I'm on stage i i just i, I could walk anywhere i had a, i had the backstage thing that allowed me to walk on stage so after we were done you know uh clapton and duck dunn and uh uh and he, he had a great band at the time we were on stage setting up so i walked on stage and uh, clapton was um i didn't know it at the time but i happened to be standing in front of his ac30 oh, wow. and clapton was <laughs> tweaking his guitar and he played it and he, he plays his guitar and he plays real loud and and and, and, he, and he looks at me and goes oh man i'm sorry mate and i turn around and said clapton and i said oh, don't worry about it Dude. You're like, turn it up as loud as you want, please. <laughs> yeah, play as loud as you want. Well, blow you know? me off so, the stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, volume, yeah, man. yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I hung out. I, I shared a conga later on with uh, Carlos Santana, and and um, and uh, what else? Uh, you know, of course, at, at the end of the night, we're all on stage, you know, together. Uh, the, the, everybody that performed that hung around that day, and it was massive. Um, you know. Um, just Ronnie Wood. Ron Wood actually was leaning on me at the end of the night. Uh, you know, I'm a big Stones fan, so yeah. that was super cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then afterwards, because we were such a baby band at the time, um, you know, later on we went on to do Amnesty International and we opened for Roger Waters mm. at, the, at the wall and we're in the film with him. So we did b- big events like that. And actually even a couple that were had more people <laughs> at the show we're like Berlin Wall but but um we became friendly with a lot of a lot of the guys connected with them and uh, over the years uh, even worked with some of them so it was you know at the, at the time it was like oh my god what are we doing here hmm. i'm glad that we, you know when i look back that you know our performance was worthy of you know of being there so yeah. it was a good night Good day. So good morning. <laughs> good morning. Yeah, yeah, right. Good morning. Yeah. I think we played. I think we played it. Uh, I think we hit the stage. It was like nine forty-five. We were okay. on stage playing. Wow. Nine forty-five. That's not rock and roll. No, hours I, I was going to say, us. yeah, that's not rock. Not for me. <laughs> not for me. Not 
for me, man. I don't think I slept the day before, you know, because I was raising hell back. Dave, yeah. I was back in that at that time. I was wasn't taking care of myself. And <laughs> it was it was like uh, you know, <laughs> it, it'd be eight thirty in the morning or nine thirty. Well, I think I had to get there at like six in the morning or something. So, uh, wow. uh, but what a day! Yeah, what yeah. a day! Um, yeah. Did you? Brian May had always talked about um, you know the, one of the things that made their performance of you know he thought so unique was that they didn't have their own pa system they didn't really have you know they were it was they were kind of going into something uncharted whereas i'm sure when you do your show you know a hooters yeah. show you have your own eq sound, your own guy. sound guy. Yeah. was that i mean can you talk a little bit about that did you guys feel that too that nervousness because you're you know it's not your pa you know that you're working on well for for us it was we were the PA was Claire Brothers uh, uh, were doing the sound, so okay. I knew we were in good hands um, at the time, and they've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over the days. And I did mention the fact that I used Marty uh, Garcia's in ears that yep. day, which changed and which made me a lot more comfortable because okay. I knew you know I could hear. Now, um, you know, I tell you, if you see uh, Bohemian Rhapsody when 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 Freddie walks out and you see that crowd, that's what I saw. That's exactly what I saw when I walked out there. And I knew because, and I look at the PA and I'm going, no, I'm going to play through a PA. I don't know if they had that feeling because they were already doing it. Um, But, you know, you look at that PA and going, wow, man, I'm going to feel the air today when I hit my drums. Because we always say, like, I want to hit that bass drum and I want to move my hair from the sound. (laughs) And uh, that was always my thing. (laughs) Now I'm paying for it because I can't hear. But the reality is it, it was... Um, you know, sound wise and everything like that. You know, uh, I had that exact seeing that film really brought me back because I had that exact feeling like, oh my god, and um, it, you know, it's special for everybody. Wow, that that's yeah. mind blowing to to, the, to see a movie like that and say. I saw that. Like that's. I mean, that's just yeah. incredible, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember at the, at the watching the movie, and and and, and it, it really. I had that moment of going like, and and I felt kind of like there's probably a handful of people that have that feeling to, to, that day, and and whoever the director of that film uh, really uh, nailed it because that's you know you look out and it's like everything's brighter and shinier and 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 people are just this joy on their face and like here we are again baby band we look out and they were glad to see us <laughs> and our philly people were really happy to see the hooters they were like man our boys are up there hi everyone this is kk downing and you're listening to rock of nations with dave kinchin so crank it up as loud as you can In a world entrenched in darkness, desperately seeking hope and security, a coalition of nations invoke a highly classified program, commissioned by their ancestors generations ago, for such a time when all else has failed. They called for but one man to light the flame, to carry the torch, which is really a guitar, ready to blast the battle cry. Behold, the time has come for Rock and Roll. Are we having fun yet? Oh yeah, I thought so. What is a best of volume one without an appearance 
from founding Judas Priest guitarist K.K. Downing. We've talked with him a lot in 2019. We originally did the book interview when he put out his book, Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest, back in September of 2018. Uh, That was a big feature over at uh, Fox when we did that story. And so we kept in contact as we did the podcast. And most recently, we talked with K.K. Downing about Judas Priest being nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what that means to him. But this is a medley, ladies and gentlemen. This is a mini greatest hits here with the K.K. Downing interviews. You're going to hear him talk about the Rock Hall induction and then you'll hear him talk about some of the bad blood that's happened, exchanges between him and Richie Faulkner, and really what Ian Hill, the founding bassist, and really the only founding member left in the band, has said about K.K. Downing. He'll weigh in on that. And then finally, he'll talk about the trial. Remember, the subliminal message trial from 1990. So you're going to hear K.K. talk about the most recent thing that we uh, discussed, one of the more recent topics, the Rock Hall induction Uh, nomination for Judas Priest and then the bad blood that's gone on over the years since he left the band and then finally what the subliminal message trial meant to him all those back then and all these years later all of that in one piece listen in Kiki Downing welcome back to the show always great to have you with us now of course talking about the rock Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame candidate listing so far. 16 candidates. Judas Priest is up on the ballot there uh, to be possibly inducted, you know, the five that they pick. How are you feeling about this? Yeah, well, good, really. I'm quite pleased. Obviously, we were unsuccessful last time. Um, and so... You know, that's fingers crossed for this time, um, and hopefully we will succeed. Judas Priest returns to the ballot with MC5, Todd Rundgren, Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode. Also joining what looks to be the first time here, Dave Matthews Band, the Doobie Brothers. Uh, you've got Finn Lizzie and uh, Motorhead and Pat Benatar there, two T-Rex. Uh, what are your thoughts on just, uh, you know, this very distinguished list of candidates? Yeah, well, like I say, I'm not exactly sure how it all um, works, but it, it seems like, you know, every time the list is just full of, you know, talent and people that I've grown up with, really. <laughs> I was going to say grown old with them, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Obviously, a, a lot of great artists, and they're all, you know, they're all legends and superstars and, and bona fide um, people that should be in the, in the Hall of Fame. It's just kind of uh, getting there, really. Um, yeah, and so some of them, sadly, are not with us anymore. So um, you'd have to say that... Um, it would be nice to see um, those people really, um, you know, awarded something really quite special as, um, as as getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think you're right with um, the people who are no longer with us. This seems to be, this could be the largest list of uh, 
nominees that include uh, members uh, or candidates, including members who are no longer living. I mean, obviously, Chris Cornell with Soundgarden. Um, I think all of the original uh, Motorhead guys are, are no longer with us. Certainly, Lemmy is no longer with us. So yeah. I guess depending on how it does work out, it would it would definitely be a tribute, uh, you know, all around. Yeah, because, I mean, we've got Mark Bowl and T-Rex, and obviously... Um, obviously the Thin Lizzy guys obviously were without Phil yep. um, you know and obviously Whitney Houston and uh, and Chris Cornell I mean the list goes on here doesn't it really you know um, and so you know kind of <laughs> a little bit mixed feelings about that really you know all of these people as I said before are bona fide people and um, you know I mean really like I say, people I've grown up with, people who have, have been on the big stages and uh, and left a, an indelible, you know, career behind. And, um, yeah, you know, and um, and obviously one of our members, unfortunately, Dave Holland, is no longer with us. So yeah. it gets to be a bit like that, I guess. There's no such thing, I often say, as a young legend. So I guess you've been, <laughs> had to have been round the block the block more than your fair share of times <laughs> before you get a look into the Hall of Fame but um, you know and I'm, apologies if I missed any people out I don't wish to mean you know I'm not always that familiar with every band but um, yeah I think I think I think we should all be um, I, think, I think we should all, all be entered in this year that would be my vote yeah no I, I agree um, I think um you know, it seems like there's been a change of leadership at the Rock Hall uh, as far as executive staffing. And I know there, it, it definitely looks like they're putting more of a focus on the fan vote. Because I think there's been criticism in the past of, you know, it, it being too much of the industry people, you know. Uh, do you think there should be more of a fan inclusion? Well, I do really. Um, I think that it's fair to say that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is something that um, you know people have an awareness of that it is very much um, obviously was started in America you know um, but it is very much a completely international you know um, thing um, but I think so therefore I think it would be fair to say that most of the fan votes would come from and I, and I could be wrong about this American Canada you know um, because we don't always get to hear too much about it you know the general public I'm, I'm saying yeah. you know um, in the UK and in fact we tend to read more about it and uh, obviously in international press but it does spill over into the UK press you know but not necessarily doesn't necessarily get any any airing on any TV channels or news or anything like that, you know, um, where it probably does in, in the States. Yeah, it's definitely something that I, I think influences a lot of chatter amongst, you know, classic rock journalists here for sure. And, right. uh, you know, one thing people, I've, I've heard some people talking about, um, like, you know, T-Rex and Thin Lizzy, you know, they've had some hits here, but maybe they've been a lot bigger in the UK and, and whether that would be a factor too. And, 
and and that type of thing because it, it definitely you're right it is it, there's definitely the, the construct of classic rock music is certainly global especially now with a new generation of fans kind of picking up on it so hopefully you know even groups that maybe have appealed more overseas do get a balanced representation i would i would hope you know yeah um i mean there's no doubt about it i mean mark Bowling in the seventies. I mean, string. I mean, hits after hits. I mean, and um, he has massive status in the UK even today. You know, but probably not necessarily so in the states. But but I'm all for the fan vote. Vote me the masses. You know, I, I prefer that rather than a selected panel of people of however many that might be. I don't know. Um, but the you know. Definitely uh, put the vote out to the masses. I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. Have you been... Um, I know there's artists like Paul Stanley and others uh, who have been a little bit critical of the rock hall. In terms of, you know, sometimes not everybody being rock and roll that's included. And I know with the, with the case of Kiss, they, they only wanted to induct the original four guys. And, and they, you know, there were so many other people who played on, you know, platinum records and, and so on and so forth. Have you... Has there been any... Uh, talk about that kind of dynamic in your circles of, you know, peers, um, you know, and, and, you know, in terms of what gets included, what should be in there and what should not be, you know, like some music, like Notorious B.I.G., I think, is on this uh, ballot, too, and it's a little bit different, you know? Yeah, I think it's rock and roll Hall of Fame itself need to potentially clarify for for everyone, really, myself included, exactly who they are, what they are, and what they represent and everything. Because if it did start out as rock and roll, which the name suggests it did, you know, that it's fine if it's evolved, you know, and it's morphed into something else, you know, on a bigger scale. I mean, I think the last time we didn't make it through, I think Nina Simone, uh, you know, um, got into the Hall of Fame. You know, well, that's a completely, totally different genre of music to what we do yeah so i can only perceive with the the artists from this year is the fact that um it's all encompassing you know uh to cover all genres or do they leave any out you know um i'm i'm not sure um but i'm fine with it If it if it includes absolutely everybody it just makes it you know a bigger accolade doesn't it really i suppose if you get in there with um you know, some famous jazz artist or, you know, classical artist or, um, and I'm assuming that's what it accommodates. Yeah, that's definitely what it seems like they're doing more of, um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, the more broad, and rock and roll is such an expansive term too, you know. Um, This would come on the 50th anniversary, I think, give or take, yeah, the 50th anniversary of Judas Priest. What would that say, um, you know, in terms of the legacy of the band for this to happen on the 50th year of, of you know, be, that first jam that uh, you and Ian and the guys did? <laughs> well, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a weird thing, you know, if it takes us 50 years before people realise that we're... Um, we're worth an award. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure if that's good. Why not 40 or 45? Right, right. Five, <laughs> you know, because one thing's for sure, and I've, you know, I, I, I did a mad exercise, I think it was a year or two ago now. I decided to put every Priest album, you know, from start to finish in my car, and every time I got in the car, I would play 
you know, chronologically the albums, and it went on and on and on. And I'm thinking, my God, you know, was I? Did, did this really happen? <laughs> you know, because when you play, it's all kind of in that way. And I thought, well, what other band has got this this repertoire? You know, of songs that just goes on and on and on. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of another band. You know, even Sabbath, did they have as many? Probably. You know, Scorpions, yeah. don't think so. Um, but I'm not sure, but it's a close call. Yeah, it's close, um, yeah. And uh, a lot of other bands who we obviously know and love from whoever to whoever, mm. you know, certainly don't have, obviously, because we've been around for so long, really, I suppose, really. So, and I think what I'm saying, David, is really... Um, the repertoire and the, and the songwriting and the albums that we've done, I think, you know, and and it's gone on, obviously, since my departure from the band, I, w- I would have thought it's probably number one in the world, mm. uh, the amount of songs and how prolific that we've been, potentially. Um, but I stand corrected on that. I, that's one for the fans, if they can <laughs> throw a band at me, if it's Saxon, Def Leppard, or I don't know, I'm trying to think... Yeah, I can't think, I mean, uh, certainly as far as longevity, I mean, you know, Sabbath starting out, I think around the same time, maybe, late 60s, but but, I mean, go ahead. They got the jump on us, Sabbath did, they they got a record contract and got their first album out and we were still, (laughs) you know, beating it up and down the the, (laughs) the motorway, the freeway in a a little van, you know, so. And and Tony, uh, Tony had a Lamborghini, I remember you saying in your book, like you saw like, Tony's Lamborghini parked uh, outside of recording studio, right? While you guys were still putting, some... yeah, is that right? <laughs> that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. You know, we were still in the van, you know, um, but uh, we were we were around there. I mean, I think we played a, a, a gig in Walsall in in the Midlands, not too far from Birmingham. It was called the Masonic Hall, I think, and. And I think Sabbath were headlining. We supported them, and there was probably about 150 people in there, you know. So it was that type of thing. Yeah. And it was the same sort of thing with us and Ben Lizzie and bands like that. We go way, way back, you know. Um, um, it's just who gets the recording contract, really. For- yeah. <laughs> well, I think one thing can certainly be said is that Priest, and, and in my opinion, Priest should have been, you know, on the ballot years and years and years and years before the first time around, just my opinion. And part of that is, you know, I mean, you guys have been eligible for, I, I don't know what the year was, but it's, it's, you guys have been eligible for many, many, many moons, but there's, there isn't, I don't think a, a metal band that has the diverse array of sounds and it can still be called metal. I mean, a Sad Wings is very different from a Point of Entry, which is very different from, you know, a Defenders and a Turbo yeah. and obviously a Painkiller, you know, and I don't think many bands can say that. Uh, it's true. I mean, because how, uh, philosophy way back was you know because we started playing this stuff that not many people like to listen to at all and i'm thinking we were kind of you know i mean this is going way back you know when we just got into the 70s and um we're thinking how can we get more people on board because the people that like it absolutely really love it so we need to push the boundaries of what we do as far and as wide as we can and i think we did that you know and I, I really do think we did that, and um, and I think it did broaden the spectrum of uh, 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 the, and the fan base 
quite considerably and also it allowed a lot of other bands you know it gave them license to also get on board with the same genre but be that much different maybe you know a little bit more melodic here or there or even heavier you know um and and so i think that that was a good thing whether it was actually the best thing that priest could have ever done i don't know um if we're just stuck to the same sound and the same style implicitly um all our bands like probably ACDC, yeah, Iron Maiden, <laughs> Iron Maiden, for example, you know, um, would we have achieved, you know, uh, a rock and roll hall of fame by now? Who knows? Um, but uh, but one thing for sure, I am going to have to go onto the website to see actually who is in the hall of fame and, and who isn't. You know, that would be kind of interesting. Um, yeah, it would be. I've got to look too. There's so many people. Like I don't think Iron Maiden's in there yet. Uh, there's there's so many bands. I mean, like Priest, that you know many fans arguably say should have been, should be in there already. And you know it's funny you're talking about bands that do kind of the same sound. I think uh, the guys in ACDC would joke. I think it was Angus who had a joke. He said, you know, the joke was that we put we do do the same album. We just put a different album cover on it. <laughs> like even yeah, they they yeah. had a sense of humor about you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty gracious of him, really, because we know as as fans, you know, um, you know everything that those guys do. I mean, you know, um, there are, I mean, there are to me in the world that I'm in, you know, I could just reel off the bands that that, that to me are, are very very important, you know, but they they'll probably some of them maybe never getting to the Hall of Fame, you know, ever. Uh, and, and we may not. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they're ex- extremely important, you know. Um, I think it took uh, Black Sabbath far too long to get in, you know. I mean, because yeah. Sabbath have been, you know, I mean, for what we do, let's face it, if it is good, if it, predominantly with the name carries rock, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Rock Hall of Fame, then obviously certainly people like um, should be in there to me, you know. Sure, yeah. if, if you were to name the three or five top metal bands or rock metal or heavy rock bands in the you know, in the world, you know, you would certainly in the world of metal you would put Maiden in there, wouldn't you? You'd yeah. have to. And certainly you know, priest, yeah, certainly priest. Uh, and certainly priest, you know, Sabbath would be there. Yeah. Um, from the old older schoolers, so to speak, you know. Um, and then obviously you got the giants like Metallica and people. But I guess it's it's kind of hard for us to see younger bands that were our you know support bands over the years. Obviously, make it make it in but you know then if you sell gazillions of records it's gonna happen isn't it you know yeah that's true uh any any other thoughts on just uh you know kind of where this all goes i guess it's exciting to watch it and and see what happens right well i think the anticipation and obviously just the media spin on it and um and the curiosity but um i would think that it's kind of probably good to make the fan vote available to people so and that's probably a pretty good guideline so i think we're kind of borderline at the moment with that so um 
we'll just see how that goes so I don't know how the process works after that and who, who actually has the final say you know yeah, there's a lot that I think they kind of keep under wraps a little bit, too, that maybe the insiders know about, but, you know, and I think they change it a little bit every now and then, so, um, you know, as long as the fans are represented, I mean, I think that's such a key thing, you know, it's, um, but ultimately, and, I, and you know, some other art, other artists have said this, too, that the ultimate, you know, the, the fans are the Hall of Fame, you know, I mean, the the the, the, the records that you're able to put on the wall as your own Hall of Fame and you know because you hit it with the fans and you hit it out of the park time after time and again you know and I think there's credibility in that argument too yeah and um, uh, you know looking at the fan vote there I mean some of the artists you know uh, as I said before are you know absolute superstars you know in my eyes you know and um but, but not necessarily in a rock or a metal genre, in another, even in the pop field, you know. Um, so, um, and if they've not been prolific for quite some years, then it's going to be, um, it's going to be hard for them to, you know, get up into the fan vote you know, on the, the fan vote scale. So um, maybe there should be different categories. Mm -hmm. I don't know, David. Maybe yeah. there should, to, to make it fair, you know. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, it's kind of questionable. Yeah. No, I, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people have said that too. And uh, maybe it's something uh, that... Go ahead. Yeah. Because, you know... Um, you know, if someone like Nina Simone, you know, um, um, you know, it gets an awful lot of the fan vote because there's, there's a lot of fans for that genre of music, then it diminishes our votes, if you know what I mean. Right, so true, true. Maybe, maybe metal should be up against metal, rock against rock, whatever it is, you know, and yeah. pop against pop and jazz against jazz. Um I don't know, but that's um, food for thought, I think, really. Yeah, and, um, you know, certainly we need all the metal fans to turn out, right? I mean, you know, all the metal fans yeah, around yeah. the world. I mean, that would be a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But not looking too bad at the moment, you know, for us guys. Like I say, the 50th anniversary is coming, so it would be kind of sweet. And as much as anybody says about these accolades like Grammys, you know, which are... You know, I'm glad to say I've got one because, you know, it's something you can put on the mantelpiece as at the end of the day, and and it, and, it, and and I think it's fair to say that, you know, if you do get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that you have left, you know, uh, a mark, you know, that's significant, um, you know, in what that you've done and achieved in your career because it's not easy to get into that Hall of Fame that is for sure yeah no doubt about it I mean it's it's taken so many groups a long time and too long and and uh, no that's true uh, any, any other parting thoughts KK anything else uh, that you'd no, like to I think, say I think that pretty much wraps it up um, I just have to say to the fans <laughs> <laughs> keep voting for the metal if you can and, um, and and I think that that's that's good um it, it is good to get, uh, well, like I say, time is moving on and time waits for no man. And um, and I, I just like to see 
uh, a lot of the artists, you know, get these, receive these accolades while they're still here, you know, with us, as a, as opposed to having, you know, been um, departed, so to speak. Wise words, sir. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. KK, thank you as always for the time, sir. And thank you, David. And, uh, and thank you to all of the fans. And hope to see you guys again real soon. Absolutely. Likewise. We, we'll see you uh, next month. We'll see you next month, I think, right? At the uh, the Essential Mega Priest uh, event, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody's welcome. It's going to be great. I mean, it's going to be, you know... Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's uh, two weeks away, and because um, like I'm going to be on stage with Ripper and Les Binks, you know, um, and um, and uh, David Ellison. Uh, it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a full preset, and um, and there's going to be no ingredient missing. I can guarantee that, you know. Even I have taken umbrage to some of the things that the band said in the early days, you know, that were hurtful. You know, sure, um, yeah. after I left the band, I was reading things like none of the fans are missing KK. You know, uh, Richie's brought a new energy to the band, which is, you know, that's a slap at me, really, as though I was kind of slacking, if you want to read it that way. You know, um, and so even I, you know, took Humbridge, but in the beginning, but now you have to go back and read the interviews in the way that it was said you know um, and decide then whether you want to forgive that person for saying what they did mm. you know Ian actually said none of the fans are missing KK well Ian you could have said not all of the fans are missing KK let's go back to the day you found out and your initial reaction yeah <clears throat> I can remember it well really we were in the south of France <clears throat> um uh, we were well, well underway. Um, we were probably uh, three quarters finished, I think, with the uh, the Painkiller album, recording the album down there. Um, and I seem to remember we got a message just saying that this issue had cropped up. And, of course, it was just something that I don't think any of us really... I mean, we were so engrossed... In the, in the recording pro, uh, process, and obviously we're all very very much on a high, you know. We were in a great location and in the south of France. It was a great time, you know. We felt that we were piecing together something very special. And, um, and it was basically, uh, you know, uh, we didn't want anything to interfere with that, you know, so called spanner in the works. And uh, we just really couldn't, at that point, take it very seriously that something ha had happened way, way across the pond, thousands and thousands of miles away. And um, and uh, and we were somehow allegedly being, you know, um, accused of something. Um, so I thought that, I actually thought, you know, how can anyone be... Uh, accused of being put on trial of, uh, you know, when, when we're just entertainers and uh, musicians, you know, and, um, and that's what we're here to do. So, yeah, I mean, for a while it didn't really sink in, and I don't think any of us took too much notice to start with, you know, until 
the next notification which came along, which obviously pointed out that um, they, they were going to push forward with it. Um, you know, whereas most of these things, you know, they can get dropped as quick as they you know, come to the surface. Yeah, that was the thing. I mean, it must have really hit home or obviously reached a whole new level, maybe emotionally, once you realized that it was going to trial, that there was going to be a lawsuit and going to trial. Yeah, I think the process took quite a while because I think even our representatives in the UK were probably thinking the same lines as us, really. Can this be real? Is it true? Uh, Do they intend to go ahead with this um, and I think everyone just thought that it would uh, fizzle out and come to nothing you know yeah what when you we heard about cases like Stairway to Heaven and the allegation that Satan's mentioned there and you know Revolution 9 and the Beatles and everything and the Paul is Dead thing I mean did you ever think that Judas Priest would ever be suspected of putting a hidden message in a song? Uh, Well, uh, no, it never entered our heads uh, at all, I guess. Um, But it was the case through the 80s that um, we heard and saw a lot of things that were happening, you know, in in the States where... There's the obvious thing with Ozzy where they tried to pin him down. But there was a there was a massive amount of bands, you know. Um, when I say massive, uh, bands you wouldn't even think. I think even the band Sticks or um, was it Damn Yankees? I mean, they had a problem. You know, there was lots of people, um, you know, um, without being able to state categorically, you know, I prefer not to mention too many names, but that, that awareness was out there because um, we'd already gone, gone through the PRMC thing, you know, um, in the mid-'80s, um, and that was that was quite a challenge, you know, with what was going on there. Um, again, so I, I suppose with everything, in stacking up, there was an awareness with bands like ourselves and many bands. I mean, I can remember when we toured with, with Kiss, I think in the late 70s, you know, there was people protesting outside the gigs in certain areas. So, yeah, there, there was certainly some kind of movements above ground, underground or in between that, that really wanted to extinguish as best they could you know, um, the, the rock and, uh, and metal, you know, fraternity and industry as we know it. And, uh, and I guess we were all always up against that and it was kind of always there underlying somewhere. Um, so I suppose that when we became accustomed to the fact that this, this procedure was going to go ahead and run its course, I guess we just took the attitude, well, it was bound to be somebody, so, you know, it's Judas Priest, so we'll go out there and um, and fly the flag and hopefully this will put everything to bed and uh, the whole of these issues 
to rest and jump in the gun a bit eventually fortunately um that's what seemed to happen but i guess we'll we'll get there a bit further down the line in the interview day mm-hmm. well yeah and i was curious about that too going to i guess we can even go right to when you you were in court and it it, it must have just been you know the press was there the you know, it was such a frenzy of media, I imagine. Can you take me through just the, those moments in court when they were playing the tapes, when they were playing the, the record forwards, backwards, um, bringing in equipment, it looked like, on some old video to try to see what was actually in it, you know, try to dissect the audio even more? Yeah, it was all a bit strange, <laughs> uh, because... Before we got there, we actually flew into New York and we went into uh, a professional studio with uh, the infamous producer, a great guy that he is. Obviously, he worked with Hendrix and a lot of other great acts. Um, And that person was Eddie Kramer. So we pulled up the, um, the, uh, the tapes, the original master, master 24 track tapes. And uh, we put them on, you know, in the studio, uh, just to find out exactly what these erroneous noises were. And um, it actually boiled down to, I think it was three sounds that combined. Because in the studio, we, we had a 24-track tape with, with sounds on all of the 24 tracks. But we were able to pull the faders down you know, um, on on tracks to leave what what left what we thought uh, that people uh, thought that they could hear, and it was actually um, at, uh, at the end of each line it was Rob exhaling uh, air from his lungs. You know, so when it goes better by me, better than you, uh, you know, and he expels. There was, so there was that sound together with a drum and something else, you know. And um, so we were very confident and comfortable going into the trial that we knew uh, as experts, you know, exactly what it was on the record that they thought turned out into a couple of words, which was actually the words, do it, you know. Um which was very, very difficult to listen to. But I guess that's what's, you know, it took me a while to tune into it, to be fair. You know, and I wasn't the only one. Um, but um, these things happen on recordings. You know, we're, we're messing with all of the... Yeah. Are you... Um, oh, go ahead, sorry. Obviously, going, yeah, but going into the studio, um, I think their expert was some kind of marine, I was going to say marine biologist, but it was a guy that actually recorded a lot of aquatic noises and stuff like that, I think, you know. But anyway, not to undermine the fella, you know, but um, I think that um, that um, we did a very, very good job of explaining. In fact, the, the judge... Uh, and, and various personnel eventually all walked into a recording studio and we were able to <clears throat> demonstrate um, exactly the, the same procedure that we did uh, back in in, um, in New York, you know, before we went to, to court. 
Um, but unfortunately, all that happened, you know, a considerable time after the whole procedure got underway. Um, and uh, and the, I think the big turning point for the judge were, was that uh, we as professionals, um, we were able to um, demonstrate on other people's records, you know, whether it was Dinah Ross or or Donna Summer or different people, you know, uh, to explain, um, to, to demonstrate in court, you know, how these things, these different, uh, different uh, co- phonetical coincidences can, can appear, you know, if you want to spend a lot of time, you know, li- listening to, a, you know, playing them backwards and doing whatever you want to do. Um, you know, so that was a good turning point and, and Rob uh, did actually take the stand and and uh, and, were, and did sing along to uh, to the song in question, and um, we were able to professionally, as I say, demonstrate uh, the the whole thing and uh, and how that it was actually uh, a nonsense, you know. Yeah, I must have thought. You know, I was thinking when Rob was even up there, you know. That and then I did. I did not know you guys were in the studio and had to go through um, recording the same procedure. I did not know that. Yeah, no, we didn't actually do any recordings. But what we did, um, as, as I said, just as we did in New York, we pulled up the twenty-four track master tapes of the song songs, and we were able to, you know, um, delete the. Um, instruments that weren't party to making the certain sounds you know until we were left with just a combination of sounds and um and i say the judge was in the studio and it was quite that was quite a good turning point because you know we were in kind of our world where we could actually be you know quite hands-on as opposed to being in the courtroom you know and um and being able to just speak when you were kind of asked and not being able to comment until you were you know asked to comment so it was it was it was good to be able to uh, uh, to de- as i say uh, put that demonstration on for the judge and everyone else that was in the studio mm. When you moved on from that and you know you continued on with painkiller and um, you know continued on making music was it was there something in the back of your mind that said, wow, you know, there's this scrutiny that's either going to always be there or people are always going to wonder about, you know, put metal under the microscope even more? No, I think what happened was because it was quite... It was... uh, The case was pretty substantive. I mean, I think we were in court for a month, you know, and, and every night it was on CNN... And and I think that um, I think anyone else wanting to kind of have a go, you know, at a genre of music, um, after that fact, seriously thought twice about it, you know, um, because we are able to put up a, a simple and logical defence, you know, um, because at the end of the day, you know, we. Um, <laughs> you know, no band wants to cause any any harm in any way, shape, or form to anyone. You know, let alone its um, you know diehard fans, um, because you know that uh, creates our 
livelihood and, and the whole reason for our, you know, our existence and, and, and for us doing what we do. Um, it's just ridiculous to think that we would want to do anything that would, uh, um, you know, want anyone to, to cause, uh, to inflict any damage or cause any harm to themselves, you yeah. know. I guess last question I had, I know some of the other band members had said it impacted them differently. Rob, I think, gave an interview to Rolling Stone talking about you know, how well he remembers it, how personally it impacted him. And I think, did Glenn write the song Bloodsuckers about that too, or was there a song somewhere along the way about, you know, about that whole experience? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, um, it was... Yeah, we were annoyed about it, to be honest, because, um, you know, uh, just uh, uh, the world of, of uh, music, you know, the bands and the fans and the media and everybody, you know, um, could do, you know, uh, could do much better without things like this happening, really. You know, um, something, you know, as farcical as that really but you have to go through the course but we were dying to get out there on stage and play for our fans you know we were ready and waiting to go but everything was put on hold you know and our, our livelihoods were put on hold and it's quite frustrating so yeah if we can have a stab back because the thing is you know um, we were told and the judge were told that that record was on the turntable uh, the night this unfortunate incident happened, you know, to the two young guys. And, um, you know, so that takes a bit of believing. Letting the good times roll along from the always busy and bustling downtown Philadelphia studios, of course, here, even on a Saturday. You know, I'm a big fan of anniversaries. It's great to talk about the anniversary of a big record. You know, we did the anniversary of um, Heartbeat City by the Cars, 1984, 35th anniversary. We did a lot of 35th anniversaries here. Even with Whitesnake, we did one with uh, Van Halen and the album 1984, uh, not always having members of those bands, of course, uh, talk about it, but it was different in this case, very different and very special in this case, talking with Klaus Mina from Scorpions about the 35th anniversary of Love It for Sting, a huge, huge record for them, really put them over the top in the United States and really around the world. Obviously, Rock You Like a Hurricane, I'm Leaving You, uh, all of these big songs, big city nights. And Klaus talked about the early stages of recording and how there was actually trouble in the band. And they had Jimmy Bain from Dio at one point who almost joined the band officially while well, he was involved in some sessions and almost joined the band as a permanent member. It's, it's something I didn't even know. So all of this talking about the early stages of the recording of Love It First Sting, Klaus Mana from Scorpions. We phoned with him from Germany. And, uh, you know, the, the funny thing about when we did this interview too, this one and the Nathan East interview when you hear uh, coming up, 
we covered the whole gamut, by the way. You know, we cover uh, Scorpions and then, you know, the the legendary basis for Eric Clapton and Phil Collins. Of course, Nathan Issa. We'll get to that interview in a little bit. Um, but the funny thing was, uh, this was very early in the show. And this was when we were, um, we had all this technology to utilize, okay? And we happened to do these interviews. We said, you know, let's 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 really make this rock and roll and let's use GarageBand, okay? So, you know, I, I just got this new app, a new MacBook and loved it, brand new thing, you know, latest and greatest. And uh, I became a Mac guy and started writing on there, writing articles, you know, for work, you know, as a, as a reporter and, and just loving that thing. And I said, you know, I would love to use the recording uh, app because, you know, I, I don't know enough about music recording to record an album yet or anything like that. Okay. And you, and people do that. But what I noticed, we, we did, so we did the interviews with, on GarageBand and what I noticed is, is, you know, everything is a bit louder. It really does go up to 11 when you use, and that's like the basic audio format. And, and so I was thinking, okay, this is great, but let's, let's get the audio down a bit. And, and it just, it's like, no matter what we did, it, it started out as just a little bit louder than maybe everything else. So this is the part where there's some interaction uh, from the audience here. We, we love a show with audience interaction. So if it happens to be, you know, we love our rock and roll loud. So if the, these next two quick bites up here a little bit louder you know we've uh, turned it down as much as we can on our end but you may have to you know turn it down just a little bit on your end if it does uh, kind of blast through the speakers a little bit but this would make sense though when talking about scorpions one of the greatest rock bands in the world and they love it when you turn it up and on 1984's love it for sting they really turned it up here's klaus talking all about that Uh, that for one of the uh, sessions 
for love is thing for still loving you for still loving you <clears throat> you know back in those days i was uh, singing in the control room you know mm. not going into the vocal booth so i was singing in the control room the music out of the speakers and uh, for some reason that, that was what we used to do in those days and so since Stockholm is such a happening place we always had couple friends and fans couple couple girls in the studio you know so it was very loose and a lot of fun and one of the girls that, that joined us there every other day was Ulla the, the, the ex-wife from Quincy Jones you know <laughs> and beautiful beautiful Swedish lady and so she was in the room as well so and I remember when I started singing and I thought this is a take of my life for, for Still Loving You you know at the minute I started singing Ulla started singing along with me you know <laughs> she always grew in every, every version you know so it was a lot of fun but at the, at the same time Uh, it was hilarious, you know, and we couldn't use any of the material at all, you know, so not only for, because Ula was singing along for other reasons probably as well, you know, so we had a good time there, and it was very inspiring, but at the end of the day, to cut a long story short, we went back to Germany, we went back into the Dirk Studios, and we started completely with scratch, and of course, we invited German rapper and Francis Buchholz, uh, drummer and bass player, they were back in the band and very much motivated, you know, to give it their very best. And uh, we started from scratch to re record uh, all the songs for, for Love First Thing. It's kind of a mind blow. I've tried to explain to people over the year we are not, almost in years, it feels like we've been doing this for years, but over the year, we are not just a metal show, ladies and gentlemen. We're not just a heavy rock metal show. We love blues. We did a whole thing in the Rolling Stones, a whole series on the Rolling Stones, how they're the greatest country band, how they're, they have great psychedelic music, as we know, and, and all kinds of things, gospel music, the Rolling Stones. So, you know, we're not, and then we talked about the Beatles and all kinds of, of things, so we're not just a, a metal show, ladies and gentlemen, okay? And people around the world in the 70-plus nations who listen to this show, they've come to know that, and we thank you for that. Proof of this is another favorite interview with Nathan East of... Eric Clapton's band, who he worked with Eric Clapton, especially on the album August and Moving Onward. We talked with him right after they did a big show at the Royal Albert Hall in England, and uh, he was fresh off that traveling too. He was about to hit uh, the road and go to Berlin, or really hit the air to go to Berlin, uh, when we talked with Nathan East. And especially, so we talked about the August sessions, okay? And this is, you know, the, if you remember the song, it's in the way that you use it from the Color of Money soundtrack, a great track from the mid-80s. Uh, he talks about how this was really a time when they put together what he calls the quartet. So a band featuring uh, a keyboard player he'll talk about, but also uh, Eric Clapton on guitar and vocals and Phil Collins on drums. I mean, imagine being in a band with both Phil Collins and Eric Clapton. Could not get much better than that. So here's Nathan East phoning in uh, and talking about that one as well. You know, that August uh, has a special place in my heart because that was kind of the first, uh, that, that 
And now my favorite moment next to the Paul Stanley interview, my favorite moment in rock and roll since I started music journalism officially several years ago, but where I concentrated on it, I'd say that goes back three years. Interviewing Sammy Hagar in Philadelphia when he played uh, with The Circle, when he brought The Circle to town. I still have my media credential. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Now, The Circle has since put out their own studio record. Sammy at one point said that this was essentially his band, that he was going to do a new record either with Chickenfoot or with The Circle. Turned out he was going to do it with The Circle. And, uh, but before that, this was in the early stages of the circle where they came to several cities across the country and they played the greatest hits that all feature Sammy Hagar, hence the circle from Montrose to solo stuff to Van Halen to solo stuff with the Wabaritas, his band at the time, Vic Johnson's in the circle now and Vic Johnson goes back to the Wabos. Uh, Michael Anthony is in the circle, of course, and most legendary from Van Halen and Van Hagar, of course. And then Chickenfoot, which they pull in some songs from the Joe Satriani uh, era, you know, because Joe Satriani was part of that band. Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers also in Chickenfoot. I'm keeping all these bands straight, doing the best I can here. There's so many of them. And because Jason Bonham, the son of legendary Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham, is in the circle, they do some Led Zeppelin stuff too. Now, in truth, I don't remember hearing a lot of... um, Chickenfoot songs in the circle, but I'm sure they've done it. But from the concert I went to, which was um, uh, immediately following this interview, you're going to hear with Sammy Hagar. And uh, there's a couple of notes on this I'll get to in just a second. An interview that was a, an amazing moment defined by fate, but also an amazing moment befallen by fate. I'll get to that, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you all about that in a second. I know that's a big teaser. Okay. Um, but let's walk through this one more time because there's a lot of bands and then I'll, I'll tell you how things, you know, were almost perfect. Okay. So Sammy Hagar, The Circle, his current band. Okay. It's a greatest hits band, but they also have an original album out uh, called Space Between. Okay. But th- this interview is from 2017, about uh, September of 2017. So it's way before the new Circle album came out. Okay, so this was a time when Sammy Hagar was uh, going out with the circle doing the greatest hits, hence a full circle. And uh, it's this means Montrose music from the 70s, Sammy Hagar's first solo run after Montrose, his time joining Van Halen from 1985 to 1996, his solo era after that, which he, after leaving or he says getting fired from Van Halen, he put together a band called the Wabaritas, or the Wabos for short. And Vic Johnson joined that band, uh, and they they did a bunch of records. And then Chickenfoot was formed eventually, which was a supergroup. Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony from Van Halen. Uh, you've got Joe Satriani from Joe Satriani, just a legendary guitarist who trained many great players out there, as we know. And Chad Smith of the Chili Peppers. And then you go into this project, The Circle, which includes... Uh, Michael Anthony, Vic Johnson from the Wabos, and then it includes the great, iconic uh, Jason Bonham, the son of the great, iconic 
John Bonham. And because you've got the son of the Led Zeppelin drummer in this band, they would do some, you know, when the levee breaks, they'll do some Led Zeppelin uh, immigrant songs, some great tracks from Zepp. And so the circle's definitely worth seeing. You're going to get the Van Halen stuff. You're going to get Montrose. You're going to get everything and some original stuff from their latest album, too. So I talked with Sammy Hagar backstage before this concert, which Collective Soul opened. Uh, Collective Soul was amazing, too. And uh, we t- Sammy had uh, donated to a, a Philadelphia charity. Uh, he, he goes, one of the things we talked about is how he likes to give back to communities. And, uh, you know, he, he says he grew up not having a whole lot of money. And so he knows what it's like to not know where your next meal is coming from, that sort of thing. And he talked about supporting uh, a Philadelphia group that helps feed the hungry. So we talked about that. We talked about the circle and everything we just, you know, kind of, we just gave you the full run of the circle here. And then we also, now this is where fate comes in. Okay. I wanted to, you're going to hear at the tail end of the interview, me asking him about um, Van Halen and whether he would come back to Van Halen. Now I did this whole interview. This is one of those things where I was working for a TV station and I was pitching this story big time. It was a big story and I was pitching this like crazy, but we could not get a camera person over there. We could not, it's a busy day here in Old City. And of course you can hear people on the bikes and having a good time out there and we're having a good time here. So we're staying to the story. And the story is we had we, I could not get a camera crew there. So worst case scenario, I was going to film it myself. Okay. But they didn't give us cameras to use individually, you know, so we, so we had a cell phone. So I did. Now this interview, we, it, it's literally done via cell phone. Okay. So it's cell phone audio, but we did this uh, and, and it was a six minute clip and it got, it's got like half a million, no quarter million views on YouTube, which is awesome. But then I dubbed what we call double punching photographers. If you know, if you hit record and then accidentally hit the button again, it's a double punch. I double punched the camera and cut off probably the most important part about Van Halen. And I didn't know it until I, I tried to go back and I said, where's the rest of the interview? It was only a minute, an extra minute, but it was a critical extra minute. And we could, I was so, I was bummed out for days. Okay, and then as this interview would get 100,000, 150,000, 200,000, more than 250,000 views on YouTube, probably a thousand of them are me watching it and, you know, reliving my failure in that moment for, you know, double punching that. But I, you know, I just, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> but the brothers somehow got to me. The Van Halen brothers were, must have been in that room or they must have, uh, they, they put down an electromagnetic pulse and shut down cell phone signal or something or made me hit that button. I don't know what happened, but it did. And so what Sammy basically said was he doesn't think he was joking. He doesn't think the Van Halens remember him. And, uh, you know, that, that, that things have been really weird in that camp. And uh, the other thing was that uh, would come along later. This was not in this interview, but further evidence that things broke down is Sammy Hagar would turn 70 years old the next month after this interview. And because he said Eddie Van Halen never wished him happy birthday, he knew it was over. You know, all these rock stars dying, all these people were losing. Sammy Hagar turned 70 and he says Eddie Van Halen never called him to say happy birthday or anything. He knew any hope of connecting was over. But that's but in, in that last part, he basically told me 
you know, he doesn't think they remember him and, and uh, you know, as a joke and, and, and that, uh, you know, he's he's given up on that and he's focusing on the circle and, and uh, you know, very sad, unfortunately, but that's kind of the way things are and where things stand. So here is that Sammy Hagar interview, which is a huge hit on YouTube. And uh, we'll come back and finish up the show with our good brother, Shane, the Vinyl Master. But uh, we want to thank you for listening in to this two-hour edition of The Best of Volume 1, Part 2. And now, The Red Rocker in Philadelphia. So far, it's felt good. We had a day off the first day we got here in Philadelphia, and so we had some really great food, of course. Always great. And we go around, look at some sights and all that, and uh, the weather's beautiful. So, so far, Philadelphia is great. Now, ask me after the show if we do really good. I'll tell you, it was really great. That'll no, be great. I don't think uh, I've ever done a bad show in Philadelphia. I think there's tequila's good here, but it's not It's not your stuff. Mesquite. It's not, yeah, right, mesquite. Yeah, mesquite. That's right, right there, right there. Right there. Santo, baby. Absolutely. In the house. Anyway, um, Simi. You, Phil Abundance, obviously very appreciative of a very generous uh, check that you, you had given them. How personal is this for you? I read, you know, in your book, you talk about, you know, struggling when you were growing up. We just talk about what it means to help so many people. Well, what we started a foundation nine years ago, and the idea was to just help people on a small, personal level, like in our backyard, like keep, keep it commu- in the community. And uh, so then when I go out on tour, I do the same thing. We, we just, we go out, we go to a city. We, we give money to that city. So I feel like it's my community for a couple of days, right? People come and see me, they pay money. So I like to leave something, um, you know, a little treasure behind rather than just take the money, stuff in your pocket, and never see it again, you know, and then, yeah. and then go, hey, bye, you know, see you next time I need money. You know, it's not the way we do it. Uh, so that's what the foundation is all about. And I really believe in local. Absolutely. I'm a big local guy. So we like food banks the best because they usually keep it really local. You can't ship perishables, you know, to, to Africa or to South America. Everybody needs food, don't get me wrong, especially now. It's, no, but, and that is the bottom line. People do need food and water. What do you need? Food and water yeah. to survive. I mean, so it really just starts with basics. So I like to so. keep it local. That's that's our whole concept. I don't like giving money, some writing a check and putting it in the mail and never knowing where it really went or anything. When you come to a town, you meet the people, you write them a check, and they go right down, they buy food, and tomorrow people are going to be eating some, yeah. some of that food. That's our favorite. So. And, I gotta, and Mrs. Hager, is that okay? To yes. Say, um, what does it mean for you to be a part of this and, and to see all these faces and the lives you're changing? Well, as I said, you say, I have to ditto the same thing. I mean, how can you not? I mean, we just went to Houston. I think that was really, you know, last week. You know that that's for sure what these people need right now. Um, I actually friends who lives in Houston, and they said there was piles and piles of clothing. But it's the perishable food, it's the water, you know, knowing where your next meal's coming from without a disaster, let alone somebody who's just trying to, you know, survive in this economy and, and whatnot. So it's, a, it's valuable. Oh, um, two more quick questions, if you don't mind. First, um, the circle, your whole career, you got <laughs> Matros, Solo, Van Halen, Solo, everything. Chicken it seems foot. Like, chicken foot, of course, chicken <laughs> foot. Um, tell me just what it means to bring all that music to people, and, that, and especially at a time where people we're so divided as a country. Music kind of brings people together. Just talk about what it means to bring that music to so many people. Well, The Circle's my favorite band I've had in 100 years, and everyone says, oh, better than Van Halen, oh, better than Chickenfoot. You know, Chickenfoot is Chickenfoot, and Van Halen is Van Halen. Sammy Hagar as herself usually goes out and plays a little bit of this and that, but with 
Michael Anthony in the circle so we could play as much Van Hagar as we want and it's legal. We and hit the notes. It, yeah. yeah, and hit the notes. <laughs> and with Jason Bonham on drums, we can play some Led Zeppelin, which I could never, that's, that, that's uh, sacred t- ground before. So now uh, I feel comfortable singing a few Led Zeppelin songs. And then, of course, Sammy, the whole catalog with Sammy and, and Chickenfoot, Mikey's in that band too. So that's what it feels like. It feels like, wow, we can do play anything we want. I think it's the best set list in rock and roll. Sorry, everybody. I mean, you know, <laughs> The Stones got the greatest hits and the greatest thing in the world, but they're going to hear all Stones. Maybe that's what you want. But if you want to hear a little bit of rock history that that I've been involved with, The Circle brings it, and we serve it up really well. <laughs> My favorite band for sure, that sure. reason. And, and i got to ask you, any chance of... Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the best of Volume 1, Part 2. Diamond Day! And uh, to do this, <laughs> it's a celebration, ladies and gentlemen. It is a celebration. Absolutely. Absolutely. To be here with the Vinyl Master Shane, one of my best friends. You know, we started. I started working at Fox 29 uh, in 2011. You became one of my closest friends. We had the same taste in music. We've seen oh, how dude. many shows together? Oh, we've seen... I've lost track. Van Halen... Metallica. Yeah, Metallica. Sabbath. Yep. Uh, Kiss. Yep. Motley Crue. Everybody. Jane's yeah. Addiction. Simple Minds. We saw, yeah, we saw all, so many people. It's just awesome. On and on, baby. Yes, It's indeed. never going to stop. And and to be able to talk about this with you is, is, has been Absolutely. awesome. And, you know, great friendship, too. And great ideas, you know, for the show. And, and you know, you you know, just, uh, you're a friend for life. You're my brother. And, and you know, brother in rock and roll, too. Love you, bro. Likewise, brother. Love you, too, man. It's been awesome. So, uh, we've got the Misfits coming up, you know, in December. That's gonna I be can't cool. Can't wait. That's gonna be you really can't cool. Can't jinx this. No, it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> it's gonna be great. You know, a December surprise and early Christmas. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. I wonder how many of you guys are going to the Misfits. Yeah, that's right. This is what the original. Get in contact. Let us know. And yeah, yeah. You tell know. us what you think after the show. We'd love Do to it. hear from you. Absolutely, that'd be fantastic. This is the original. Not the well. There's, there's about as original as you can get, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, that was my childhood. So yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, I had the Ramones, I had the Misfits, yep. I had Kiss. It was all those bands that just did something different. Yeah. Whether it was the image or and and the and incredibly great music. Yeah. But the Misfits were <clears throat> so wrong that they were right, you know, at the time. And that we've talked about kind of we've had this running discussion on the show and I apologize. I know I said we're gonna talk more about great classic rock logos, but really the Misfits have, and then we iconic. kind of talk about other stuff, but they have one of those iconic, iconic. logos, yep. right? Where did that come from? Do we know where that came from? <clears throat> so the Misfits logo, we were tr- we, we had to take look for it, but the, it came, yeah. tell me the story on that. These guys were film buffs, major film buffs, and uh, <clears throat> there was a, a film called The Crimson Ghost, and uh, that skull was taken from pretty much straight up from the movie poster for that film. Okay. It's an old movie. Um, I've never seen the movie. Love to know if it's any good. Um, And then their name, the band Misfits, at the top, you know, like on all their albums, is the exact same logo, just like Def Leppard has their own. Yeah. has their own. Um, Their logo came from a movie magazine, sort of like uh, Fangoria and stuff like that, those horror horror things, but it was called Famous Monsters of Filmland. Okay. And that's the font. That's where the font came from. The wow. So I remember that stuff, but I just, that's, it, when you see it, you're just like, yeah. You yeah. never know. Yeah. Yeah, that's And cool. that's like when Metallica, when their logo changed, I was a little bit bummed because I love that early logo. Yes. Yeah. And um, Misfits sort of realized that, you know, even though they've gone through several different lineups, 
with and without Glenn and this, that, and the other, that they kept this, they kept their style and they kept that logo. Yeah. And it just perfect. stands out. It's know? awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very cool. Well, yeah, we can't wait for that show, and we'll have many more together, so it'll be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I was too young to see them when they first came around, so uh, and they broke up. Heck, by the time I I didn't even uh, know about them, mm. um, and now you know, <clears throat> people might say they sold out. Whatever they played, Madison Square Garden or playing Philly next. Um, it's just going to be enjoyable to sing along and enjoy the songs and. Yeah. And get to see the band that I never got to see. And Glenn Danzig to see him. I've oh. never seen him, so that'd be awesome. He's too. an icon. Yeah. You know, love him or hate him. Um, there's usually no middle of the road with Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm a big fan of Danzig. I'm a big fan of his other work, and I'm a big fan of the Misfits. So. Perfect. It's going to be a great show. All right. Don't break up. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stay with it. That's right. All right, well, this is, this has been the Best of Volume 1 Part 2. Ladies and gentlemen, we thank you, Shane, we thank you, and uh, we will see you next time.